beautiful synchronization. <laughs> Who's, yeah, who no, says no. left unity isn't a thing? <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> All right. Hell yeah. I've got, Hell yeah. we've got wave, we've got wave sign or wait, what is it? <laughs> Not wave sign. What is it? Worm sign from Dune, I, but wave for, we've got wave form. <laughs> yeah. Are we you a, uh, how hyped are you for the, the new Dune? I'm extremely hyped. I was actually talking to my roommate because, you know, Texas theaters technically are like open <laughs> and I'm like, uh, okay, let, let's, let's put up the wager of if Dune was premiering, would you go see it in the theater? And personally, I think I would probably, I would probably take the risk. Honestly. You would? Yeah. Yeah. I probably would roll the yeah, dice. I, mean, I could see that. I mean, I think there are certain films or certain things where I'm like, yeah, absolutely would risk, you know, potential death. Welcome to Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry. As always, sponsored by the People's Institute for Revolutionary Semiotics. But uh, before we jump into our guest today, uh, whom I'm very excited for, just want to mention that uh, we do have a Patreon. We do accept patrons. Um, you can find us at www.patreon.com forward slash M-U-H-H. And uh, if you enjoy the show and you, you feel so inclined, uh, definitely feel free to th- throw me a dollar or something like that. I do put all that f- money back into the podcast production, so um, it's only going to make things better for everybody. But I'm very excited. Long time coming. Uh, we've got today's guest, Adam of uh, Red Library Podcast, fellow, well, maybe I shouldn't disclose your location. But. <laughs> You're about to dots me right as we start. No, yeah, we, we exactly. mentioned on the show. We're, we're, in the same, we're in the same hood. We're in the same city. All right, cool. So ATX podcasters uniting. And I think if I'm not mistaken, <laughs> I, I sought you out, right? I feel yeah, like- you actually, you slid into my DMs on Twitter and was like, hey, what's up? You're in Austin. And then that was the beginning of our weird maniacal yeah. friendship. Yeah. Right, yeah, that's awesome, right? Um, but so today we are looking at uh, Shlavoj Zizek's uh, book, Pandemic. And I forget what the what the subtitle is, actually. I should probably bring it up. Oh, yeah, that's it, a good uh, question. Let me see. It's Pandemic, COVID-19 Shakes the World. <laughs> so this is essentially a 126-page hot take. Uh, yeah. So I feel like that title is very fitting. <laughs> And uh, something that's funny, too, is that I had actually done, I did an episode a few, maybe a couple of months ago, like right before the shelter-in-place kind of shit was going on. And we, mm-hmm. I did a funny episode with a guy from, Bo from uh, Psychic Dolphin Garage. Because yeah, Zizek yeah, yeah. had also, Zizek released a couple of articles to RT that were kind of, and he even repurposed some of the content from those articles. 
Yeah, I was wondering about that too because my impression reading through this text, uh, if you can call it a text, <laughs> again, it feels like a very long article that you would see on like exactly, Independent yeah. or like, yeah, RT. Right. But yeah, I, I gathered that he had published those articles and in true Zizek fashion, he writes these off the cuff, you know, like fairly short accessible articles about some major like social political event everyone gets really pissed off about them for whatever reason because of his hyperbolic nature. And then this is sort of like him elaborating on that and responding to some of the criticisms of the articles themselves, which I actually love that. It's just such like a meta commentary of like him and his own writing and the people who are critiquing his writing. So it makes for a fun read. Yeah, it's it's pretty funny. I'm also I'm actually kind of embarrassed because I was totally downplaying the seriousness of, of COVID at that point. Oh, really? But it, it, it's a good episode. But yeah, it was like, uh, it was like talking about, you know, I'm not shaving my beard. I'm going to be a disease vector, et cetera, et cetera. So then I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> I think I remember that episode. I remember I laughing f- whenever you said that. I feel like quite the asshole uh, in <laughs> retrospect, uh, considering everything that's happened since. But I'm, I don't know. I'm like a naturally skeptic, skeptical person, especially mm-hmm. nowadays. Like it seems things take a, things kind of take, off on their own into the weird like zeitgeist and the speed of that and the reach of it and i don't know there's something weird about now like with social media being as intensely utilized as it is the way that these kind of these kind of situations spread or like mm-hmm. things go viral i you know what i mean yeah no i mean there's i think a it's weird, some... there's a weird relationship there yeah no i think in some ways that you know i i kind of say this is like a 126 page hot take, you know, a little bit sarcastically and a little bit critically. And also at the same time, this is sort of where I think most people get introduced to Zizek is this particular kind of writing. He writes these like very, like relatively accessible works about some like thing that most people have experience with that you can grasp like really readily. Like this isn't a book about Hegel and Lacan, although Hegel and Lacan are in here obviously, right? But I think the reason why I find Zizek so important to read, especially for things like this, is precisely his focus on the critique of ideology and the way that analyzing the function of ideology specifically in these crisis moments is a really, really important thing to do. Because in some ways, it is precisely in these moments whenever everyone wants to just like have these knee-jerk reactions that ideology in itself functions most strongly. Because in his definition, ideology is always like the world being presented to you as if like this is just like bare facts, like this is just the nature of reality in itself. And I know we're going to talk about it, but the section about you know, like how do you distinguish data from ideology, I think, is exactly kind of why being skeptical is a really important thing to, to be in these times, you know, to not sort of minimize, but also at the same time, not to allow ideology to sort of like function even more effectively, because this is precisely whenever it does that and, and like structures of power and, you know, elites and like capital itself, like really, you know, I think accelerates the more that we kind of just accept things as they are, especially in a crisis. So I kind of want to start us off as far as the nitty-gritty discussion here, and I think this mm-hmm. is interesting because I don't know if you've been paying attention to what our, our good friend uh, Elon Musk, the socialist, <laughs> has been shitposting over the last couple of days. I've seen a little bit. I saw there was like a huge thread where he just had a complete meltdown. Um, someone in our, our Red Library Discord, uh, big shout-out to Metronome21, if they're listening, uh, was like, 
someone posted that and then the response was, yes, I too have tried mushrooms. And I just thought it was like the best response imaginable for that. But he, he said something along the lines of like free, free America, free America now. Yeah. And this was, this was three days, three days ago. This is Elon Musk's pin tweet now from three days ago. And something that I think is really interesting for me is like, yes, I agree free America now, but there is there's a huge difference between what Elon Musk means when he says free America now and what I mean when I say free America now. And I think that you're on the same page with me as far as what free America now really means. You know what I mean? <laughs> I mean, it's an interesting question, right? Because I, I would sort of be curious. I mean, what is your conceptualization of what Elon Musk means when he says free America now? I have no no idea. It's just it's bizarre. It's irresponsible. It's you know shock jockery. I don't know. It's like he's a fucking jackass. I mean, <laughs> what a what a jackass. Somebody that's got thirty plus million followers on Twitter that is some kind of like hailed as like a visionary and entrepreneur and like this is the like face of of the future of capitalism and and all yeah. of that and the guy's a, a fucking moron. You know. Are, Cooper, are you trying to tell me that you do not think that the best and brightest rise to the top in our <laughs> capitalist system? Is that what you're really trying to tell me right now? P- possibly could be leaning in that direction. I don't know. <laughs> we'll have to we'll have to see how this conversation goes. Yeah, that's but right. Yeah, I mean, well, that's what that's like like idi- I mean, your example, the discussion of ideology, like this is it with yeah. Elon Musk. Also, I think, you know, hitting closer to home, you know, uh, so to speak, the fact that Texas has a uh, quote unquote reopened as of yesterday mm-hmm. too. Like these are just glaring examples of ideology in the context that you that you brought up initially. Yeah, I mean that discussion of even like a signifier such as freedom, right? And how that gets defined differently depending on sort of yes. the, the group or like the interest and like the power that someone has in in how they define and understand that term. I mean, yeah, again, it's just you know, say what you will about Zizek, but at the end of the day, I think his project and his focus is one that is absolutely essential. Um, and I think in a lot of ways, it's like not engaging with it, you know, allows even even like quote unquote radicals and like revolutionaries that I know of to sort of fall prey to ideological like obfuscation um, just as much as any fucking liberal or like reactionary Republican that I know. So, you know, in some ways it's like that, that critique of ideology has to also be turned like back against yourself. I think if you want to really be serious about it, a little self, self, real self crit hours. Yeah. Who up, <laughs> who up? Um, I want to read this, this quote, cause this is going to kind of launch me into an, another kind of bullet point that I want to be sure to, to hit is, mm-hmm. um, it's not hard to imagine that large bands of libertarians bearing arms and suspecting that the quarantine was a state conspiracy would attempt to fight their way out. And so we actually see this, you know, weeks later, weeks after the publication, maybe a month or so after the mm-hmm. publication of the book, we see, you know, particularly like, I think actually there were, were there a similar protest here in Austin? Or I can't can't remember what the context was, but I think there was like a, there was definitely a May Day Mm-hmm. Uh, protests here, but I think even at the cap, there might have been like this weird counter protest. But I think Michigan is really the hot spot for this exact phenomenon of these like kooks, 
rolling up to the state house with their fucking AR-15s in tow, and it's such a bizarre, like, ideology is the only way you can explain this. It's such a weird relationship uh, between the the sort of Trumper-type individual and, like, how they how they compartmentalize, like, the different, like, Trump is not somehow not part of the government. It's such a weird, bizarre thing that I think only ideology and psychoanalysis can really help us understand. I totally agree with that. And I know that you and I both have quite a bit of familiarity with this sort of, like, more right-wing reactionary kind of mindset. I mean, I think we both, like, grew up with understanding that intimately, you know, very well. And I think this is precisely why psychoanalysis is so crucial. Like we actually talk about this more and more on Red Library right now because we do a lot of stuff on Lacanian psychoanalysis, especially lately. But I think the reason why it is also an indispensable tool is because part of what we're trying to understand and part of the political landscape, you have to be able to grapple with these questions of like, how is it possible that you know, this like group who has like resources and like wealth and power and is like relatively, you know, not like comfortable and safe can also simultaneously feel that they are the ones like most under threat. And that's an ideological sort of process and an ideological like function that you're you're encountering. And so, yeah, I think you have to be able to find some way to understand that. And I think a lot of the times whenever you don't have a tool or some sort of framework to understand that I think it just looks like nonsense or it's like there's no way you can even understand what what the fuck is actually happening in the world around you um oh shit sorry I was gonna say something yeah so I um you know it's funny because thinking about my own background and coming from like a very right-wing like reactionary sort of place one of the things that I found really interesting is that there was a study that was done I think in like the mid to late 80s on the on the Marxist idea that essentially the the ideas of the ruling class are the dominant ones in society right and they basically like tested this a bunch of sociologists in the uk and in france tested this and they called it the dominant ideology hypothesis and they basically did this huge study where they said okay well let's actually just go interview a bunch of people from all different class positions and let's see what they think about like really core questions about politics and like wealth redistribution all this other stuff and what they found was that at the like upper echelons of, of class society there was a really, really intense amount of similarity between like ideas. Like people really did share the same dominant ideology, right? But as you got further down, like into the middle and like working classes and lower classes, it wasn't that they had like like people in those class sort of strata, like had the same ideas. It was that they had like more of this really uh, like contradictory, like very bizarre different set of ideas that were almost kind of like welded together that really were like very contradictory and didn't even make sense. But it's like you can yeah. believe a lot of different things at the same time. And whenever I see those people at the Capitol, that's what I think about. It's like, how is it possible that, you know, the like a billionaire who is in the office that holds, you know, still arguably the most power in the entire world could simultaneously be outside of the system yeah. that he in fact benefits from and is somehow this like great crusader. You know, he's like, like the... Yeah, like, you know, the God King Trump that's going to save us from, <laughs> like, lizard pedophiles. I mean, right. but that's the thing. It's like, that's how ideology works. It, like, allows you to cobble together all these different ideas. And somehow it leads to certain actions in the world, right? And that's how you get people showing up at the capitals. Because ideology has material effects in the world. Absolutely. I, I think it's interesting to look at because, you know, we're kind of told, like, the liberal 
mantra that we're brought up in or the milieu is like, okay, you know, there's like a ra- the things people are, ra- or there's like a rational, ra- rationality kind of operates effectively, you know, the best ideas are going to win in the, in the marketplace, et cetera, et cetera. But I think you can see very clearly that that doesn't happen. And I had a friend that was posting on Facebook. He's like kind of pointing out the same contradiction here between, you know, Trump's involvement in the government and billionaire, et cetera. And like, how does that, how is that congruent with this weird, like fetishization they have with being like being the victim and playing the victim and feeling like they're under threat, right? And I was like, man, the only way that you can understand this is through psychoanalysis and there's some kind of like weird, I don't know, identification with the phallus. And mm-hmm. I feel like, I don't know, this is my own like armchair psychoanalyst coming out is like there's, they're never like exiting the edible stage of development. And so they're <laughs> stuck in that like mommy, daddy, weird like relationship. Yeah, I mean, go off, King. That's all I got to say. I mean, it might be armchair psychoanalysis, but it's pretty spot on, right? I mean, because that's exactly why there's this deep libidinal investment in Trump as a figure as, you know, as the daddy. Is is he a zaddy as well? I mean, I think for maybe at least some portion of the, the right, they absolutely think Trump is the zaddy. I mean, you know, McGowan and Angley did that whole episode on like zaddy fascism recently on Why Theory. And I think it's pretty interesting because they basically say that in a sense, like what the right and these sort of like more fascistic kinds of worldviews have is like they sort of thrive and and they very consciously operate on the figure of the zaddy, right? That there is this figure that's going to give you this deep libidinal investment and like satisfaction. And maybe it's an unconscious satisfaction too, right? That's something that McGowan obviously like talks about. And we're doing a series on, on his book, um, Capitalism and Desire, which is all about this. But, you know, I mean, coming from that background, I can absolutely tell you it's like, you know, this feeling of, oh, like we know very well that we're symbolically castrated and finding a figure to then imagine or like invest in as if they are not, yeah, that they're not castrated is a deeply satisfying um, and sort of enjoyable process, right? There's a sort of like perversity of enjoyment in it that I think is like, it can't be underestimated. And that's why, you know, I think a lot of like liberal perspectives of just, oh, if we just like had the right facts or if people were just more rational, like this wouldn't be happening. And it's like, well, that's a fundamental misunderstanding of like how political power in this, in this way is built in the first place. Yeah, absolutely. And I think even to carry that forward into kind of a more, uh, a vulgar Delusian sort of (laughs) idea that I have about this too, is that, or this is kind of, no, actually this would be like mixing Deleuze and Lacan in this, like Lacan had the super egoic injunction, which is like to enjoy, right? Mm-hmm. And so people that have this like protest talking about or the, all these people clamoring to quote unquote open America back up or what have you, right, is like there's a lot of desiring production that's been <laughs> that's like it's it's like overflowing. It's kind of like the oil, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. The oil futures trading like there's no place to store all of our excess desire. So the they're like turn those desiring machines back on if you've ever <laughs> if you've ever seen what is it trading places the dukes yeah, the, yeah, yeah. turn those ma- desiring machines back on <laughs> i mean this is exactly why you know post 9 11 right remember that the that the sort of bush 
injunction was basically like, oh, how did yeah, we know that things shop, were back right? to normal? Go out to shop. Go out and buy shit. Like in some ways, that that's also what Bush was saying, right? And there's like a there's a resonance here. There's sort of like a a similar sort of function that a crisis, whether it's a terrorist attack, you know, at least at the time in the states of unprecedented you know proportions, or a fucking global pandemic. Like the thing that is most terrifying is the desiring machines being shut down. And so that's why the I think the approach has to be like turn them back on because in some way, and this is, you know, maybe a more brute like Marxist point from my own perspective, is that the only way the capital continues to function is that it always has to be in motion. It always has to be circulating. The second that that process slows down, that's essentially what leads to crisis. And I think we're seeing that exact thing happening right now. It's like, you know, consumption, circulation, these things are like grinding or sort of like, you know, sludgingly like slowing down. And then it's obviously causing immense havoc and ruptures in the system because, yeah, the nature of capitalism has to be constant movement. Um, but to seriously move on, because I think you had to <laughs> seriously move on to, to your legit notes, which are which are fantastic. <laughs> Um, I think we'll, I was, we'll was going to say we could do this all day, all day. Right? Yeah. <laughs> for sure. I I do kind of want to. We do. There was kind of a point that I w- we'll circle back around to, but yeah. I wanted. To, you had some interesting things um, in the notes about the dialectics of touch, feeling, and feeling isolated, and sort of bringing out the full presence of the other. That were mm-hmm. uh, honestly, I. So I'd like to hear you kind of delve into what what you're referring to. Yeah. So for anyone that. Um, you know, doesn't have the book in front of them or, or isn't familiar with it yet, so it's pretty new. Um, Zizek kind of opens with uh, the phrase no limi tangire, um, which is touch me not, from John uh, 2017. And what I really love about this is this is just such of like, like a true dialectical point. And it's so, I think, characteristic of Zizek's style. But what I really love about it is that you know, every everything contains like the presence of like its opposite. Like that's how it has to be defined, right? It's always this sort of like tension or this like rupture in between two two opposite things that is part of I think the dialectical method. What it's exploring is always to say, like, how do we understand how two things that seemingly are opposite like sort of depend on each other? And it's not, you know, the sort of kind of simplistic idea of of uh uh thesis antithesis synthesis that i think dialectics really um like a lot of times gets bastardized and thought about especially by like right right wing assholes like ben garrison and shit like that (laughs) but you know it's like dialectics is really about this idea that there are these two fundamental things that are in like antagonism with each other and it's uh and like a synthesis in a in a i think in dialectics and hegelian dialectics is never like there's some resolution it's that the contradictions persist in new ways So what I really, yeah, so what I really love about this idea is that it is only whenever we are put into a new material context where we are then forced to be in isolation from each other. Isolation becomes the greatest form of solidarity and like care for others that we have. And I think that this is a really challenging thing for a lot of us because, you know, as someone like I identify as like a communist, right? And or some form of that, whatever the fuck that means anymore. Um, (laughs) But the idea is that, you know, a lot of times we talk about solidarity all the time. And there's this idea that solidarity is precisely whenever we are sort of like most in proximity to the other. That it is precisely whenever I'm like standing next to you in, you know, like on 
like on a picket line or whenever I'm like giving you food, right? It's this like idea of care that is very much about like direct contact with each other. But what I love about how Zizek flips this is actually to say that in in this moment, we're actually understanding that solidarity, to be in solidarity with each other is precisely to abstain from being in proximity. And I think it's a really dialectical point because it, it takes something that seems very uh, like logical and sort of we take for granted and it flips it on its head and sort of like shows that it's actually functioning in like a completely different way at this moment. And I think that's a really, it's a really interesting thing, you know, to think about sometimes like being in solidarity means denying yourself like the very thing that you think you want. Um, precisely to almost like be able to like be fidelitous to some like larger sort of principle that's beyond like your own sort of, you know, basic like needs and and sort of wants and desires that you have. And so I think it's a really cool way to start with this because I think it just helps to recontextualize like what we think solidarity is or how we think being sort of on the left in this particular moment, like what that looks like, because the people who go to the Capitol, right? Like the whole point and the whole like criticism is that like it's them desiring so strongly to have their own individual consumption and their own like like ideological definition of freedom, like which is, oh, I should be able to go get my hair cut. I should be able to like go consume in the way that I normally do. And for you to deny that for me means that like my freedom is being impinged upon. And I think like, like the opposite conception is what Zizek's offering, which is like it is precisely by denying yourself those enjoyments that in itself is to be in solidarity and to actually abstain from being in proximity to each other. And so I think it's just like a cool Zizek sort of move where he just he defines things in the opposite way that you normally would would think about them. And then he runs with that idea and like kind of sees where it goes. And it doesn't always go someplace really great or really productive, but it's always fun. Right. Yeah, definitely. Um <clears throat> So it kind of moves on to talk about this concept of, uh, I guess, the new normal Mm -hmm. sort of arising from the ruins, almost like that, the new synthesis (laughs) to some degree, Mm -hmm. Um, which is interesting because I think a lot of the desire is to try to sort of go back to normal or normalcy or what have you. But that sort of, you know, that's sort of impossible at this point. And mm-hmm. so we have to build. We have to build this new normal, um, whatever that is going to look like. And uh, I think some of my own concerns about building that new normal express themselves in this idea that, you know, one you can't really produce or uh, not produce, but you can't prove a negative. And so there will be a, a lot of resistance, no matter what happens, no matter how many what the death toll is, or et cetera, et cetera, the fallout in terms of like the 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 illness itself, directly speaking, is that we won't be able to understand or grasp that the measures that have been put in place are effective, right, at at sort of, you know, flat, flattening the curve. Like, that's the big idea is to not overwhelm our, our healthcare system. And so that's what this whole shelter mm-hmm. in place is, is all about, ultimately. And I think we're in a very dangerous predicament with this because— Obviously, you know, I don't want to underscore or like minimize the damage to not only people's health, their lives, their loved ones, their careers, etc. But, you know, let's say this was something like an Ebola, something like a, a much more like the death rate was even 
twice to three times what it would be for this illness and what's going to happen you know at some point down the road if if a virus like that takes place like there's going to be a lot of resistance i think to to applying these same measures and so one wonders like or is sort of horrified at the thought of you know these same protesters doing this when there's like an ebola type situation mm-hmm. going on this weird like crazy irrational world that we live in um that's my biggest fear about about the norm, new normal is that this results in this kind of like boy cries wolf scenario where you know these people don't you know it, like is it just because of it's it's so hard to grasp that the effects you know like i said again just going back you can't prove a negative right mm-hmm. i don't know yeah. what do you think I mean, I think wasn't that actually something that Zizek sort of mentions as well is that, you know, the the real trick here. And I know we're going to talk about Agamben who comes up later in the book because Agamben, like, you know, who's in a very well-known Italian political philosopher, was commenting on the situation in Italy was to say that, you know, do we like we have to be very wary of this kind of a situation justifying a particular kind of political response and a particular sort of reinforcing of state power and control over you know, what we could call bare life and biopolitics in the sort of Foucauldian sense. And so, I mean, I think it's it's really tricky, right? Because this is precisely the question of ideology that we're grappling with. Like how, in fact, do you distinguish what seems like a quote-unquote rational response to the conditions as as we can understand them as best as we can versus a ramping up of like an ideological sort of project or an ideological axe that someone has to grind and is going to use a crisis to sort of justify that or... You know, like if we respond in a certain way and then what if it turns out that, oh, maybe this situation wasn't as bad as we thought. I know that there was a study that they did in California where they were testing people for antibodies for for coronavirus. Right. And they found out that, well, based on the study and it's only one study and they're going to do more. So keep that in mind. But, you know, they found out that the I guess based on the study of uh, the antibodies that people had, that that coronavirus was actually likely to be 50 to 80 times more prevalent than they thought. And it had been around a lot longer than they thought. And it was likely that many, many, like many more people had encountered coronavirus, but like developed antibodies and like didn't actually get sick. And so, you know, it's like, that's a, I mean, as far as I know, it wasn't, you know, that study wasn't funded by the fucking Cato Institute or anything. (laughs) I'm sure it's a pretty legit study. And I could see how very easily you could read that study in an ideological way and say, well, yes, like this isn't really that bad. Um, Really, we shouldn't shut down the economy. We shouldn't isolate. But yeah, then what happens, you know, for the next virus? Because I mean, with, you know, the climate apocalypse, you know, ever quickening upon us, I mean, odds are like there's going to be even more diseases and viruses, and that's going to be a really serious effect of climate change as well. And so, you know, it's like we need to expect that this is, you know, maybe like there could be things much more serious and much more even life-threatening and deadly coming down the road. I mean, I think that just... You know, this isn't me being a, you know, major black pill doomer, although I am, but, you know, it's like, but that's, I think, a pretty serious and rational concern to have. Yeah. Um, just based on the way that ideology functions, that's the scariest thing is like the irrational shit that you can't control. And I hate to skip too far ahead, but I don't know that that image that Zizek gives us of like how funny it is that something like a, as dumb as like an asteroid or a virus can could mm-hmm. wipe us out like and just sort of underscores our irrelevance or sort of our powerlessness against you know whatever whatever nature or time or i don't even know how to 
qualify what that would be um, <laughs> can sort of snuff us out and like the idea of this a virus right it's just it's a piece of RNA or like DNA and a, and a protein coating and it's not even yeah. really alive technically it's just this sort of dumb thing it's a it's a you know what I mean we have this I think idea you know in our heads that intelligence is like vital to survival or it's somehow mm-hmm. good for there to be intelligence or whatnot. But like this almost is saying, yeah, it's not necessarily the case. It's like kind of putting a, a check on that idea and saying, whoa, like, yeah, it's just things can be dumb and successful. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, in some ways, this is one of the things I still, I get a perverse enjoyment out of reading Zizek still in this way, because I think on some level, even if it's slightly ironic, the basic, ontological view is that we live in a monstrous dumb universe <laughs> yeah right <laughs> you know really like doesn't doesn't adhere like doesn't bend to the sort of like rational ideas of how we think it should function exactly. um you know i mean and i think what's like really interesting to bring this up too is how you know a reminder that something as like stupid and like you can't even like define it as being alive or dead like a virus right or or like an asteroid and how this can snuff out everything in an instant and it actually reminds me of how, you know, after World War One, you know, that the the impact on the sort of underlying ideological structure of Western Europe in particular was that, you know, history is progress. Um, you know, everything about philosophy and art is designed to, like, increase our progress of civilization and we're able to understand the world rationally and make sense of it and conquer nature. World War One happens and essentially it just in one fell swoop over a couple of years, just systematically destroys every basic philosophical assumption that the entire edifice of like most like Western European and and the United States, like our whole sort of worldview was built on. I mean, that's where like things like Dada came from, right? Dada was this artistic movement that basically was trying to grapple with the fact that everything that seemed to be rational about the world inevitably brought about the most horrible destruction that no one even could imagine at the time of like technology and, you know, weaponry and like large armies and total warfare. And I think there's something about this virus that actually reminds me of that. Like it reminds us of like the absurdity of things and like how fragile things are. Um, And, you know, and I think depending on how you react to that, that could spur you to want to sort of find a, some sort of liberatory framework in response to that precisely because, and this is the dialectical piece, right? The more fragile things become in a sense, like the more imperative it is to find some sort of like liberatory kind of framework that could then counteract that or could like try to like protect people as much as possible or like to provide something that could like allow life to be livable in that sort of scenario. Um, But to me, I mean, I think, you know, if we look back, I mean, will we then be able to say that this was the defining ideological, like, rupture point of our generation? You know, maybe more than 9-11, maybe more than, you know, the economic recession in 2008 and 2009. I mean, we'll only understand it in hindsight. But I do think that ideologically, like, there's something about, like, this kind of a scenario presenting us with sort of like the absurdity of of like the universe that is like i actually find i find really hopeful which is like a really weird bizarre thing to say but in some ways it's you know it's like that i mean how long can things continue the way that they exist in like neoliberal capitalism without something that has to like fundamentally shake you to your core right yeah i always thought uh i had predicted for a long time that 
Mother Nature would be the at the vanguard of the revolution. I didn't expect <laughs> it. I didn't expect it to exactly play out in this fashion. I thought climate change would be that mechanism, but yeah. um, I don't know. I'm. It's I, there's potential. I think that maybe the best case scenario I see playing out is that the realization comes to fore that there must be some sort of universal basic basic income offered and that's like going to be the the ruling class uh sort of way to solve this or like i don't see how you can sort of avoid that moving forward but i don't know like how how bad is the pain going to be until something like that is implemented obviously that's just a stopgap to to reify the existing system as well right but i think that's a possibility in in a way that even like, you know, six months, we might not have even, even if you are like an optimistic universal basic income, like a Yang gang or something like that. I don't think you were, gang, 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 gang. <laughs> you were seriously thinking that that's something that could be implemented anytime soon as crazy and like as reactionary and fucking, I don't even know how to describe the, the capitalist regime that, that we're under. But like that's something that I thought was sort of laughable, and I'm not confident mm. that it's going to lead to anything necessarily better. But I think that UBI is something that really, like, legitimately could could come out of this. Yeah, I mean, I think so too. I I guess that I mean there are two things that I I think about with with the UBI issue at the moment. We were just talking about this actually last night with me and some of the some of the crew from Red Library that you know in some ways. Like the whole debate over UBI, I think, was this question of, well, who's who's the one who's proposing UBI, right? Is it the is it like the you know the kind of like upper middle class DSA crowd who wants like fully automated luxury communism? Like their idea of what a UBI is is very different than what Zuckerberg or Elon Musk think about with the UBI, right? Like right. the UBI is like a sort of last ditch effort to prevent like capitalism from completely breaking down. It isn't designed to give you luxury. It's designed to give you like bare subsistence, usually so capitalism doesn't grind to a halt. And, you know, it's funny to think about, yeah, even last year, whenever I thought about Yang and the the sort of like the, what was it, the freedom dividend? Is that what he <laughs> yeah, called it? Yeah, the freedom dividend. Yes. Yeah. So with the idea of the freedom dividend, you know, it was always it always struck me that it was kind of like the idea, like the second wave radical feminist idea of wages for housework. It was this really like relatively radical idea that was never designed to be like an actual like like concrete policy recommendation. It was always this thing of like, we're going to suggest this to sort of extend the horizon of right. what we want. And, and I think in some ways, like UBI has now very realistically become like a thing of concrete practical importance just to prevent capitalism from breaking down. And I think that all these like debates about, yeah, like UBI and what is its function and like who's introducing it and like what's going to be the effect materially on, on how capitalism functions. Like these things are like, like hot issues now. And it's not just like a bunch of academic debates happening right. in like, you know, the Jacobin like catalyst journal. Cause I, I mean, I've, I've read those, you know, and they're interesting. And now all of a sudden it's like those debates are like of utmost practical importance for, you know, not just like, you know, people who read shit like that, but you know, for like my family back home and, you know, like for me and for you, right. These are like questions of material practical importance that are going to be decided and very likely are going to have to be implemented in some way. And that is a, you know, it's a thing that Lenin said, right. How like sometimes, you know, there are, 
there are years where like nothing happens and then there are weeks whenever years happen. And I think we're definitely in one of those moments right now where it's like really astonishing to be, to witness it and also to not necessarily feel like you, you're like actively participating in history. You know, you're just kind of watching it happen. And I think that's a (laughs) tough experience to say the least. We're in that, we're strapped into the roller coaster essentially. Yeah. All of us. And uh, yeah, Yeah. we're, (laughs) we're going down. We're not sure what's going to happen uh, it, yeah. We're going into a tunnel right now. We're not sh- clear on what the next hurdle or or thing's going to be. Um, but I guess moving on with the piece, uh, so Zizek gets into a little bit about the the Communist Party in China and uh, discussing crackdowns on on student movements. Um, mm-hmm. But most importantly, this uh, this challenge of the old Maoist slogan of, of "Trust the People." Mm-hmm. which I'm not as familiar with. I, I'll, I'll maybe leave you to, to comment on that. I'm not as read up on Mao. <laughs> well, uh, I'll, I'll do my best to give some, some idea of how I read some context. Here. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that in, in sort of the last phase of, of Mao's life in China, there's essentially this shift to saying that, you know, the main the main class struggle right now is no longer between, let's say, like a, a nascent like communist movement and like a nascent like proletarian and agrarian sort of revolutionary movement against like the forces of capital and imperialism. Um, but it shifts to more of the idea that the the class struggle now shifts from a material struggle to one of ideological struggle. And the way that it was conceptualized was about the people with the capital P versus like the state party bureaucratic apparatus. And as that became more solidified and more sclerotic and everything else. And so I think like Mao's whole sort of perspective, and this is really what a lot of the genesis of things like the, like the hundred flowers campaign and, you know, even like the very early beginnings of the cultural revolution were designed to say that the party state apparatus has become bureaucratic it has sort of led to this new kind of solidified class interest that is actually against the very people it, it claims to represent. And so I think the idea of like trust the people, this Maoist slogan is, I think at least on the surface, and we can maybe talk about how much we want to really like give credence to Mao, like really being truly a representative of the people or whether this was him actually wanting to reclaim power in his own state party bureaucratic apparatus. Um, I mean, I've read, I mean, you know, I, I'm very interested in like this history and I think it's still to me like not super clear on like what was actually happening. Yeah. Um, but I think the idea would be that like trusting the people is kind of this Maoist slogan of saying that the state party bureaucratic apparatus like no longer trust the people because it now is fundamentally operating on a different set of interests. And this right. is actually a question of the ideological struggle is precisely one where the people are looked at as being, you know, um, like untrustworthy or they need to be controlled. They need to be guided by the party. And so to me, that's kind of the, the, the way that I read it is that it's this sort of command or this sort of injunction to say, you know, the people together in their collective interests have like a sort of wisdom or a direction and we need to like trust that. So I don't know. What do you make of that? Is that, does that kind of make sense for you? Yeah, no, that, that makes total sense. Um, I'm curious, you might know this better than I, is this kind of around the period where Mao was like telling the students to like kill party members or, or like bomb the party off, something like that, bomb party headquarters or do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Yeah. I mean like the early phases of the cultural revolution are like so complicated. And I think that 
the way that you interpret these and sort of like think about this history, I think does actually have pretty serious implications for your your like political analysis of of like the relationship between like the state and or like a party right and and like the people the collective interests that they're you know sort of either operating against or supposed to be operating in in the sort of you know in their place right or they're supposed to be the voice of the people let's say um so my understanding of this history from you know the best historians of it not just like you know shitty like red guards takes on it but like (laughs) the actual historians of it is that you know, in a sense, this is the result of like Mao trying to reclaim part, uh, power back within his own party that he had been sort of divorced from and was increasingly being marginalized from. And sort of in some ways, like he was this very charismatic, like very, you know, like world historical figure. Um, and, and I think he carried a lot of weight because of that. And his sort of encouraging of students and of youth to sort of in a way like rise up against what he saw as a sort of um like re-emerging interest of like a a sort of like a proto-capitalist class like a state capitalist class you know was to say well like you know your parents like these older generations they were revolutionaries but now they're sort of being like sort of seduced back by capital and was to say like they need to basically you know you need to like rise up against them so the the idea is that maybe this was actually more driven by Mao wanting to use like the people as as like a, a new like a base for him to reclaim power within the party. But it, to me, it seems pretty clear that what he did not count on was the fact that if you get a bunch of high schoolers to just be full of like revolutionary zeal and then just like set them loose, you know, and like kind of give them like in some ways like symbolic, you know, symbolic authority to do whatever they want to do based on that ideological vision. I mean, it had pretty fucking disastrous consequences. And yeah, like, you know, like communities were destroyed, but like people were being tortured. Like, I mean, this shit happened, you know? I mean, I think that's like pretty clear in the history. Um, But what's really wild is that eventually those Red Guards groups splinter off into their own, like almost like gangs. And then those Red Guard groups start like actually waging war against each each other. other. And then the... Yeah, and then the army eventually had to be called in by Mao to put them down because they completely <laughs> lost their shit. You know, and I mean, but it's a fascinating history to me because it really does speak to, I think, like the this question of like the relationship between the people and the state. Right. And, and sort of, and in this very unique context, I think, of like w- how that actually played out. And so, you know, just to bring it back to the text, I mean, I think that, you know, it's interesting for Zizek to sort of invoke uh, trust the people because Zizek is also someone who is incredibly skeptical of the people <laughs> you know, in a lot of ways. Um, and I find that really interesting about him because he seems to like always advocate this sort of like he doesn't have any utopian, like rosy, you know, vision right. of like some like unified humanity that like wouldn't be rife with like contradictions and tension and conflict. I mean, I think even though he advocates for that in this piece, I think he also inherently like doesn't trust the people. Like he's a deeply paranoiac person. Um, And so I just find it a really interesting thing for him to say that because like to some degree, I I agree with him, right? Like we can't assume that like people as groups, like, you know, are like a hundred percent fully rational. Right. And yet at the same time, like there has to be a certain way of, of at least in Zizek's perspective to, to be able to grant them more trust precisely to take it away from the state. And I think that's what is like an interesting and kind of a, you know, maybe a dicey sort of theoretical move to make, but it's one I find actually pretty interesting to explore. Yeah, I think that 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 relationship between, I guess, revolutionary movements and, and the state, obviously someone who kind of 
tends to identify as as an anarchist communist of of some stripe, right? Like the yeah, I think that's an interesting relationship, and I don't know as much about sort of the the Cultural Revolution, the Chinese Revolution, to to speak too much to it. But you know, I've heard that what is the something like uh, along the lines of you're uh, an anarchist is just like a or no a Maoist is a disciplined anarchist or something like. Have you do you know what I'm talking about? Have you heard this? Yeah, yeah, I have actually. I mean, I've read Which a I good bit funny. of. Yeah, I mean, it, well, it's really interesting, and that's why, like, to some degree. I don't put a lot of stock in like hard distinctions between like different positions on the left. Cause I think in a lot of ways, like, like to me, it, it, it usually just becomes a ideological justification to just like be an asshole to other people. Right. Um, you know, I mean, there are like real theoretical and historical like points of contention to, to like debate. Right. I mean, I think that's true, but more often than not, you know, like, uh, yeah, I mean, the fact is, is that Mao himself was very influenced by anarchism. I, there's a, Oh shit! There's a great book I'm looking on my shelf right now. It's called um, like a critical perspectives on Mao Zedong thought, and it's really great because there is a lot of discussion in there about the sort of the anarchist influence in the early development of Mao's particular interpretation of of Marxism, and like to me, it sort of complicates the picture, right? It's like there really maybe is a lot more um, overlap, or there's 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 historical relationships between something like like Maoist thought and anarchist thought than maybe most people realize. Right. Um, yeah. So, you know, I mean, yeah, I think that that saying absolutely makes sense to me. And, and, you know, as someone who's identified as both an anarchist and a hardcore Maoist at different points, <laughs> I mean, you know, I feel like I have very intimate knowledge of like, Oh yeah, there's actually a lot of similarity between these two. I think to give that a lot more material credence in the, in the context of where we are now, I think this is interesting in this context of like, this tension between federal and state power and how that's going to work with this idea of states reopening, you know, the economy or reopen, whatever reopening, however you want to contextualize that or, or use that mm-hmm. idea. Um, I think that's a really interesting dynamic because, right, like I could see, of course, our, our illustrious governor, Greg Abbott, is all for like reopening the country, but I don't think that's going to like I think the city of Austin in particular would be very resistant to reopening to some degree as much mm-hmm. as they kind of yeah. can. So I'm interested in that sort of that tension. That's one, so do one you, side of it, right? Yeah. I was curious. I mean, do you see that, especially in a city like Austin, which is, you know, I mean, I guess I would still call it very liberal yeah. overall as a city. Right. I, I'm wondering, do you, do you see that there's going to be like, tensions and sort of like conflicts and contradictions between you know the order to reopen the economy but maybe a lot of this is like where that like reactionary like glorification of small businesses like bites like the power that power like the sort of power stretches that be in their ass because it's like oh like yeah it's all about small businesses and entrepreneurship and then all of a sudden it's like oh well let's reopen the economy and then all the small businesses are like fuck you we aren't reopening <laughs> like we're not doing any of that like i could see some of that stuff playing out i'm curious what you kind of predict might happen with like the tension between like local businesses and like the larger state order. Yeah. It's interesting. Cause I'm the kind of situation that I recall bringing up this tension in the past was the back. It was several years ago, whenever Uber and Lyft, um, I think, no, the city of Austin had passed this ordinance where you were going to have to be fingerprinted to be a driver. Mm-hmm. For, I remember this for Uber and Lyft. Um, and I was driving for Uber and Lyft on the side at the time and so I think the state ended up 
somehow circumventing that requirement or they kind of like basically overruled this city ordinance so that mm. kind of technically i guess went went away as a requirement for the city and so i feel like this is another example of you know someone like greg abbott who claims to be about you know freedom my freedom and all that kind of bullshit but is ready to use like state power to override local government clearly exposing how much of a fucking hip the hypocrisy of his whole like freedom you know uh pulpit that he's trying to preach from right so i, I don't know yeah. I, i'm curious to see like what is rio like people have been talking to trump about you know reopen the economy what the fuck's he gonna do send in the national guard to you know force restaurants to open up and force people at gunpoint to go into a restaurant it's such a like the contradictions in that whole move themselves are dizzying as as fuck to be honest yeah i mean it's it's really sort of bizarre to think about i actually just had this image of you know like trump's like uh like the militias like the right-wing militias operating on behalf of trump like coming to kick your door down until like drag you to applebee's just so you'll consume (laughs) you know i mean it's interesting because this is something that you know, I think with the Uber and Lyft and that ordinance that was passed in Austin. But the other thing that I think about is uh, whenever we pass paid sick leave in Austin as well. You know, and that was seen as this huge victory for a sort of like burgeoning leftist. Like, you know, it was like very DSA sort of led. But that was seen as this huge victory. And at that particular moment, I think, you know, the Bernie Sanders campaign was ramping up. And so it was seen as like, oh, yes, this is a sign that like we're, you know, our time and power is is nigh. Right. Like it's coming. And then they win this victory in the city of Austin. It gets kicked up to the state, and then the state just demolishes it. Yeah, and then, you know, and it really sucked a lot of the air, I think, out of, like, groups like the DSA. And we, had, we have, I think, still one of the largest DSA chapters in the country. And I think that this is something that Frederick Jameson talks about. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to invoke my zaddy, Frederick Jameson. But, you know, Jameson writes a lot about how in the sort of like context of American politics and and sort of the history of like the development of the state and like federalism and shit, that this tension is actually like really, really acute in the United States more than anything, not just because of our history of political institutions, but also because of the ideology that we have, right? And this thing about Abbott is exactly the point. It's like, yeah, we'll talk about like freedom and my freedoms and like, you know, Team America and all this other bullshit until it comes down to something that is very materially about you know, like we have to keep the economy moving. And then it's like the, the sort of facade like falls. And then you see that, oh, at the end of the day, it's about state power. Yeah. Like it is about power. And it's about these people have control over the institutions and levers of power. I mean, this is something that like Perry Anderson talks about too. It's like, you know, whenever you read like right wing philosophers and like political theorists, you know, it's always important to remember. It's like, these are the people who have power at the end of the day, you know, and you know, say what I will about me being a communist. I mean, you know, I mean, at the end of the day, like these state power institutions, like these state apparatuses, right? It's like, I mean, by and large, the conditions, the political conditions that we're in, like greatly favor people more like Abbott having control over these institutions than people like me or you. Right. I think interesting as part of like continuing this out further, like this line of argumentation is that you have the tensions between I can't remember which state it was, but there's like these supplies of, I forget if it was masks or or what the situation was, but like the state called in the National Guard to protect these supplies from, I think, if I remember correctly, it was like civilian federal government um, 
officials or something like that, right? <laughs> Which was kind mm-hmm. of an interesting thing to see. You don't see a lot of that kind of like state versus federal government tension like in our era, right? Like in civil rights or something like that, that tension is like much more apparent. But like today, it's interesting to see that. And so I think that's an outgrowth of this same kind of weird relationship that's happening. And maybe, you know, the the tremble, uh, tremors of some sort of balkanization process. Mm-hmm. So are you saying that you're really all for Texas independence? Is that what you're I, really in favor of? I, I'm for Texas becoming the new Slovenia. And uh, <laughs> then, then I, I personally will produce uh, much of the region's uh, theory for the next several decades. I like it. You know, I, I'd be in favor of that. I mean, if, if the balkanization of the United States is a collective, like, political entity were to basically just lead to more regionalized philosophical and theoretical specialists, I'm exactly. on board for that. Yeah. I mean, th- I mean, you know, that's maybe the greatest thing. This is a really terrible thing I'm about to say. <laughs> that's almost like the, the best thing that came out of, like, the breakup of Yugoslavia, of, like, the SFRY, was at least, you know, we had this very regionalized, specific Slovenian school of psychoanalytic theory. So that's, that's really the only good—I mean, it's a great thing. There's a lot of horrible shit that came out of the Yugoslavia breaking up, but, you know, we got that. Yeah, that's, uh, the, that's the dialectical movement was to produce <laughs> Zizek himself. He, complete, yeah, he completed right, yeah. the system of Slovenian <laughs> idealism. <laughs> <laughs> and, and we all either benefit or are cursed by <laughs> depending on who you asked. Exactly, but it's funny too the parallel between Slovenia and— uh, or Wait, is it Slovakia or Slovenia? get those confused Slovenia. okay so yeah i believe mm-hmm. they both we they share coastline I, f- I can't remember what body of water but they're both on the coast so that's my like logical analog analogy for, <laughs> for texas 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 is just slovenia in the united states i like it you know i mean at the risk of trying to make some connection here you know in some ways whenever we talk about like this tension between like state and federal power you know this isn't like all that different in some ways from the exact thing that we criticize uh, places like the Soviet Union and like and communist China about, you know, because the whole argument, especially whenever people talk about things like the Great Leap Forward or like the like famines and like socialist countries. Right. Like the whole criticism is always that even like, well, let me say this, the most uh, sort of at least sophisticated criticism is usually that it had to do with this tension between like a state party like apparatus up top, but then the regional representatives of that party. And then basically them having to basically like cook the books on like production numbers on like yields of harvest to essentially like meet these targets that were, that were set by the, you know, by the sort of party apparatus. And, you know, to some degree, it's like, I know it's a completely different context, but it's so funny. Like whenever we critique, like, how, like, to some degree, like, let's say in, in communist China, right, like, we'll critique that historically and say, oh, yes, well, that's a sign of, like, this authoritarianism and state power, and we should be in, like, you know, basically dismiss all of it or, like, ruthlessly reject it because of that. But yet in the United States, it's like, you know, that there might be tension there, but really at the end of the day, whenever push comes to shove, like, the whole way our government is set up is to basically, like, still grant priority to federal power whenever it needs to implement it. And so, you know, in some ways, like this whole order thing is kind of a funny, a funny, like ironic twist of history that maybe at the end of the day, what we're going to see is how much like federal power really is going to like win the day. You know, whenever really push comes to shove, it's going to be like that federal power that dictates how things are going to go, or at least it's going to attempt to. 
yeah, it'll be it'll be interesting to see how that does play out, and depending on how you know, I'm, I'm not as pessimistic as I was at the beginning of this, I guess, but it'll be interesting. Of the podcast, or oh no, just like the I guess <laughs> more so in terms of the like the the beginning of sort of the real like shelter in place scenario mm-hmm. to now. Yeah, um, I mean, I was pretty concerned at the beginning just because I think that there's. You know, when I see these videos of you know, farmers plowing their, uh, you know, crops under, et cetera, et cetera, it's like, well, fuck, we are going to be fucked for, we're going to starve because, for one thing, this entire food production apparatus is so welded to, you know, pr- production for profit that whenever you remove profit, the whole fucking system is going to collapse and we're going to starve. And so that was like <laughs> something that was big on my mind. It's more like this idea that okay well you know capitalism is is shaky right now it it could something new could emerge but in the meantime you know we're probably gonna there's the potential to like our entire way of life is going to be disrupted and like a sinking tide sort of sinks all boats kind of thing more so than like this optimistic thing that okay this is going to lead to some sort of you know real reckoning of the system which zizek is is sort of trying to, to argue for I'm very I'm not a sanguine about that um, so no I mean I think it's a good thing to bring up I actually talk about this with you know other people on on the left especially you know self self-proclaimed revolutionaries and radicals like myself is that you know this glorification of like revolution with this idea that it will like fundamentally change everything about our basic coordinates of like political and economic and social life you know, whenever you historically look at, well, what usually leads to a revolution, it's usually major, major social crisis. And and the thing is, is that, you know, in some ways, it's like if you ever advocate for that sort of thing, it should be done with a very, very severe amount of like gravity and right. sort of like resignation, yeah. you know, because odds are if, it, if something ever has to come to that point, like it is going to be like destructive on a level that is hard to contemplate. And, and I think that you know, it's one of the jokes that we saw like in memes about like Bernie Sanders, right? Where it would say that, oh, like Bernie is the compromise. Yeah. And I think that there was something that was really appreciated about that because it's basically saying that, you know, listen, like an actual like revolution is a horribly violent, destructive thing. You know, this is what Trotsky said, actually, you know, I mean, about anarchists. So I mean, <laughs> say what you will about like this, this quote, but you know, it's like, you know, it's like, you know, what did, did these people like think that a revolution is like, like some peaceful process, it's like, it's a revolution. Like that's the nature of it is to be violent, you know? And I think he was saying this more about like pacifists and stuff, right? Cause I know, you know, that's maybe a bit of an unfair sort of like reading of Trotsky's quote, but, but I do think that that's something that has to be grappled with like very seriously that it's like to, to see systemic change on the level that we want to see is usually going to necessitate some very, very severe crisis that's going to bring it about. And that's not anything I know for me, even describing myself as, you know, like a radical revolutionary or whatever, that's not something that I'm like, like, anti- like, you know, enthusiastic about yeah. or like want, like want to see that happen almost in this like pure, just like, like death drive sort of yeah. like desire, you know, it's like, that's going to, it's going to be horrible, you know? And, and that's something I think has to be taken really, really seriously, especially if you're advocating some sort of like revolutionary change and like overthrow of capitalism. Yeah, uh, it's funny too, like along those same lines for me, because I'm somewhat into 
like certain strains of accelerationism too. And it's like, I've had this idea that, yeah, like, like I said earlier, that mother nature would be at the vanguard of the next revolution, not Mm -hmm. anticipating something like COVID being the vector for that. And realizing that like, whoa, shit, like sometimes uh, I don't want to be right because like that shit is like, it's scary. Like whenever the wheels of history are turning, like that's some scary shit to be, it's like you're in the, uh, in the dryer, you know what I mean? You're sort of like tumbling yeah. around and like, or that metaphor of, of the fucking, um, the roller coaster. It's like, <laughs> yeah, we're strapped in mm-hmm. now. Like you're going to have to ride this thing out and, and come out on the other side and we'll see what the hell happens and we'll do our best to, to, yeah, to come out and, you know, hopefully fingers crossed in, in a better world, but. You know, um, on red library where, um, like the, the way that we kind of describe our perspective on a lot of things is uh, what we call like dialectical pessimism. And, you know, that's something that we're kind of like working through with some other shows on a podcasting network that we, that we're on called the lost horizons network that we started with a couple of other shows, the regrettable century and from 78. So Neil, who's been on, you know, machine unconscious happy hours from the from 78 podcast. So, but, you know, we talk about this. It's like, you know, a lot of times I think, we don't understand that like in that sort of process, like being in the dryer, being on the roller coaster, it's like, you know, if you are, if you're going to be in that sort of historical moment, there is no guarantee. There's actually probably very little possibility that you're going to be the sort of like the great, like incendiary figure, like leading the masses. It's like, odds are, it's like, you're going to be, you're going to basically be just fucking cannon fodder, right? you know, in these sort of like great historical processes of like the, and you're just going to be ground up in the wheels, you know, like the way that untold countless millions upon millions and millions of people have always been, you know, and that's like the thing that's also, I think, yeah, like has to be grappled with like very seriously is that, you know, even like wanting that sort of a process to initiate or like to be, to want that to happen, also means that to some degree you have to accept the fact that you may you know, play no part in it or yeah, you may just be, you know, like ground up, like, you know, you're going to be the manure of history as, as we talk about on our show sometimes. Right. It might be as if, uh, to, to reference the back to the Zizek piece or book, rather the, uh, the war of the world's scenario where <laughs> the yeah. invading, the invading aliens in HG Wells classic encounter are, germs and they can't withstand them and our dumb germs end up defeating this highly technologically advanced species or, or what have you and Zizek mm-hmm. very characteristically as you mentioned earlier flipping that relationship on its head um, I think is in some interesting ground there um, but I'm curious to get what your take is on on this kind of metaphor that sees us as the Martians uh, I mean, this is uh, <laughs> the the risk of putting Zizek's joke back on himself. This is pure ideology um, because, you know, in some ways it's like the Mr. Smith philosophy from or Agent Smith philosophy from the Matrix, right? It's like, oh, like we are the virus, you know, and to some degree, I'm like a little skeptical of this because it's the same thing where people are like saying, oh, like, you know, now that shelter in place orders are happening all over the world, uh, the earth is healing oh, now. Right, yeah. And like one of my favorite things I saw someone post, it was like a picture of like the old Lisa Frank, like coloring uh, books where it was like really bright neon <laughs> colors. And it says, look, the earth is uh, healing. We are the funny. virus. And that's, <laughs> that's been one of my favorite things that I've seen and all of this. But I mean, I, I guess I do like, it's interesting, right? Because it basically flips the idea 
even if you don't go so extreme as to say like, oh, we are the virus, but I think to like flip it on its head and not see us as the protagonist, right? The inherently sort of benevolent protagonist like is I think actually a really productive thing to do ideologically as well because Zizek's whole thing, right? Is to this idea that like the universe is this like monstrous, stupid thing that we're a part of. And I think it's, it's sort of a way of like dethroning like human subjectivity or like humanity as being this sort of like driving, like rational progressive force in the universe. And I think that's actually a really important thing to do because, you know, to some degree part of, the the sort of like liberal ideology is still based on this idea you know that progress is something that's inevitable and is going to happen and that humanity is its vehicle and even you know people who are like green capitalists and shit like that like they're still operating on this idea that humanity is this like benevolent subject you know it's like oh we might need to minimize the effects the the sort of externalities of of the systems that we're creating and perpetuating but really at the end of the day we're the good guys and i do think to some degree even if you don't go as far as saying we're like a cancer and a plague upon the earth i do think we need to dethrone us as as inherently the good guys for sure agreed hard agree yeah i was yeah i was wondering what you make of that um but also shisha gets into han's kind of discussion of the of the burnout society and and the process of self-subjugation that I think really makes it makes itself known in a different context within this, whenever everyone is working at home and sort of this idea mm-hmm. that, you know, you can't waste all this quote unquote extra time that you've been given. And uh, I don't know, that sort of like push to improve, like gain a new skill, you know, that, to get a land a better job or something, which is yeah is really bizarre. But I don't know. You might be able to speak to to Han's point a little. I'm not as acquainted with their work. I was actually curious before you know we talk about like Han's theory specifically. I know that you've been feeling the pressure from this a little bit. I know we talked about this with like oh, you know, we have all this time at home. So like, yeah, you should be, be productive, like gain a new skill, but like work out and like do all this other stuff. You know, it's like, don't waste this opportunity that you have. Right. It's like seeing this, these conditions, which are very, very Foucauldian in nature as, as like, oh, it's something that you should uh, engage in like what Foucault would call like the, the sort of like technologies of the self. It's like, oh, this is precisely whenever you need to like discipline yourself or like yeah. construct yourself in a new exactly. way to make you like more like a more full subject in a in a certain way. Yeah, definitely by like, you know, keeping, you know, all the advice is, oh, keep keep a routine, like still get shower mm-hmm. and and dressed for work and like have a have that routine and, you know, like I said, pick up a new hobby or skill or, or what have you, which ironically I've actually been doing. <laughs> You know, it's been a it's been great for my like theory reading stack. That's actually I'm getting yeah theory lots of theories been read, uh-huh. which is which is good because uh, I had been slack. Like it's been a good impetus to like finally have the time to get to that rather than being like so burnt out that I don't even have the energy to do that. But yeah, I mean, I guess I am in that pan- panopticon with working out, gaining new skill sets, reading, like gaining new knowledge. I'm ready for the for the post COVID economy. It's gonna be hell. Yeah, you're gonna be such a badass subject by the time this is done. I am totally putting body without organs on my resume. (laughs) It'll be on your business. I'm fully be like nomadic. Yeah, nomadic Nomadic war machine. machine. That's (laughs) 
Um, no, I mean, it's like, it's a really insidious sort of process. I think, you know, I'm, I'm doing the same thing, right? I mean, it's, I'm, so it's, it's interesting for me because, you know, I'm, I'm still working through all of this and, and for anyone who, yeah, yeah. Right. And so like for anyone who doesn't listen to our show already, you know, we talk a lot about, um, social work on the show. So I'm, I'm a clinical social worker, which basically is a fancy way to say, like, I'm a, I'm a therapist, like with a social work background, but you know, it's like, I work primarily with, you know, the most vulnerable people and the people who are really, I mean, the boot is on their fucking neck in all of this. Like, and it's, and it's more, it's like way more intense than it normally is. And it's normally intense, you know, and I, you know, I hit burnout myself like hard, you know, this week. And, you know, it's been interesting because part of me was like, oh, like whenever all this started, I was like, well, I'm going to be working from home a lot more. You know, I'll have time to like get caught up on my theory reading and like, you know, doing workouts and stuff, you know, and, and that was sustainable for a little bit. And then all of a sudden it's like the intensity of the work and like doing this kind of like care emotional labor, you know, like really hit me hard. And I found that even though I have all the time, I'm actually reading less than I normally do because I'm just like so fucking burnt right. out. And you know, at the, I think like talking about Byung-Chul Han's burnout society is really important here because, you know, the idea is that in all of this, I think for Han, his, his idea is that class struggle, the way that we typically historically define it is like no longer the situation that we find ourselves in, at least in like Western Europe and in the United States, that in a sense, like antagonism is no longer directed at like an alternative class or like a like an antagonistic class towards you. But it's something that we fully internalize and are now in this antagonistic relationship with ourselves. And so the reason why we feel oh, we like, I got to make use of this time. I have to be productive is precisely because on some level, it's like you have internalized your boss. Like you are your own boss now. And this is like in some ways kind of what what Foucault says in the introduction to, I think it's either Thousand Plateaus or Anti-Oedipus. I can never remember. I think it's Thousand Plateaus. Oh yeah, it is Anti-Oedipus. Where he talks about we got to kill the fascists in our heads. But, but this is like the idea, right? It's like the sort of technologies of the self or like how we basically now have internalized within our own ability to be subjects the exact functionings of power that are required for capitalism and for, you know, political institutions to continue functioning the way that they do. And it's really insidious because how do you, how do you fight something that you've internalized? You know, it's like the only way you do it is like to sort of turn this kind of like antagonistic like sort of like death drive, like directly onto yourself. And, you know, there are some people that think that this is part of why things like depression and anxiety diagnoses are like skyrocketing in terms of their prevalence and their rates, because it's like a, it's an effect of where this sort of antagonistic struggle is now like deeply internalized. And it's like part of the effect of that is this sort of what are called like psychic injuries that we're now dealing with on a really, really rampant scale, or at least they're being diagnosed more. Because on some level, it's like an effect of this shift to say that, you know, now the struggle is inherent, like within you as a subject. Yeah. And this is really bringing all that out because now everyone's working from home and you have to be, you know, it's like now you're solely responsible for disciplining yourself to make sure you work and shower. I mean, you know, maybe the biggest act of resistance you can do in these conditions is to go full Diogenes and like, you know, live in a barrel (laughs) and like don't bathe and like shit on the floor and jerk off all the time. I mean, maybe that's the real act of resistance right now. Hell yeah. (laughs) Hell yeah. Externalize your internal struggle. Exactly. Reverse, yeah. <laughs> reverse the pro- reverse the process. 
Oh yeah, that should be the battle cry. Actually, <laughs> it's turtleize your internal struggle. That's really good. Hell yeah. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if you had anything else you wanted to add there before we, because I think this is something you could speak to. You know, you, you spoke to this a little mm. bit, but about the sort of three types of workers and and fatigue and how that how that impacts different types of workers because. Mm-hmm. You have someone like yourself, and Zizek exemplifies like someone who's providing care. Not only are you having to to do a job, like not only they're a task that you must complete, but you must be emotionally invested in that task mm-hmm. and the process and the outcomes. That is different. Like yes, someone. I mean, I don't want to underscore the the sacrifice of those folks that are like working at grocery stores and whatnot, right? Because they're Oh yeah, yeah. They're putting themselves. Yeah. They're like they're. It's a life and death situation that mm-hmm. that they're in, right? But they're they're. Well, I guess they're part of this too because there is that. I mean, I think the realization of your own. Oh, I mean, God, it's just the the contradictions of capital, just become so immensely crystallized in that situation where mm-hmm. you're someone that, either in your position or someone that is like getting up and going to work at a grocery store every day like the psychic weight of like knowing that you go just going to work could lead to your death and there's no you know what i mean i don't that's such a fucked up situation to be in and sort of having the <laughs> the gun to your head and not having a choice you know not having the ability of someone like myself who's in a position to work from home and relative mm-hmm. comfort and and out of the the face of danger but yeah, I mean it is. I think you're exactly right. It's it's like the the sort of like revealing. I've been talking about this situation as like truly apocalyptic lately. And apocalyptic in the actual sense of what that word means, which means like to reveal something. Because that's what it's doing. It's revealing the sort of really um intensifying, like deepening contradictions of capital. You know, I mean to me it's like I, I do get to work from home to some degree, but not entirely, yeah. you know, and it's and it's a really weird thing because like Han has this like distinction between like three different types of worker. And I think his like point is to say that at least Zizek's point is to say that, well, at least with some types of work, like maybe care work or like emotional labor, whatever it is, you might be exhausted and burnt out. And at least there's this feeling of you've actually helped somebody right. like you've actually done something that's valuable. And, and is actually like, it's not a bullshit job is like David Graeber gotcha. would say, but I actually think like to some degree, like these three distinctions like break down pretty heavily because I can tell you that for my job, like one of the things that really like burned me out with my work was the fact that like they aren't neatly divided. Like, yeah, I do like care work and emotional labor as a therapist, right? Like helping to metabolize. This is like how I think about it now. It's like part of your work is to help metabolize like therapeutically the kind of uh, like really horrible traumatic violent shit that people have experienced from like these historical systems of oppression and exploitation, right? That's like part of my job because I work in the particular field that I do. Um, You know, but there's a lot of the like really bullshit uh, like work that is meaningless and pointless that is also part of my job. Like the fucking endless stupid meetings that it's like, I could be doing a million other things right now. Why am I in this meeting? You know, or like the sort of things about like paperwork and like requirements of like state and federal grants, you know, all this stuff. It's like, this is completely pointless work. There's no reason to do this, especially right now. And so for me, it's kind of this like weird thing of where, you know, I can do therapy with someone for an hour and feel tired, but 
very like very fulfilled in some way or like feel like that was like meaningful what I just did. And at the same time, I can go from that to then doing this like stupid, pointless bullshit work for an hour or two hours and then just be like, that was ridiculous. There was no reason I needed to do that. Why did I have to do that outside of just fulfilling like fulfilling some task that like the big other yeah. like, you know, <laughs> demands that I fulfill. Right. Yeah. right. Yeah. I like that a lot. Um, so there was mentioned too in the Zizek book, the, uh, the German phrase, our beat mock fry. Mm hmm. Which I wasn't as familiar with, but then I saw someone post, <laughs> and I don't know if this was made up or not, but there was like a post on Twitter that where someone at one of the protests had that on the sign. And again, I don't know if that I saw was that. legit yeah. or not, but I was like, oh, okay. So then I like looked it up because originally I wasn't as I wasn't familiar with that term. So I thought that was uh, interesting. <laughs> I, it's it's so weird, right? It's like how uh, like I like you can't even identify what's ironic or yeah, not anymore, right, yeah. in like the ideological you conditions, because it's like that is either, yeah, it's like if that's either sincere or that is just such next level trolling <laughs> that I I like can't even conceptualize how someone could operate at yeah. that level of galactic brain irony. It's you know? almost too it's too ironic to be, sin or like, it's too ironic for them. It has to be sincere. You know what I mean. <laughs> Yeah. 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 I mean, maybe it's like new sincerity. It's like, it's where they actually know that that was like imprinted on like, you know, the entrance to the concentration camps and yet they are still valorizing and glorifying work in a sincere way while also being cynical and ironic with it. I mean, that's maybe where we're at. We're at like new sincerity reactionaryism. I don't know. It's like, it's curling back up against its, against itself. (laughs) It's like one of those, uh, a cow or a bull or something that has a horn that, or I think there's even a species of, uh, of like pig or hog or boar or something where their tusk will eventually mm. like pierce their skull and kill them. That's very, very reminiscent. <laughs> I feel like that is now my image for the people who do these like open carry protests <laughs> during, during coronavirus is just that image. That is perfect, actually. I mean, that's crazy. Like that's a, another insane example of, of ideology and just like grasping onto this very hollow kind of signifier, which I think really is describing the relationship here is like, they don't really grapple with what this, the context of this, but it's like a a signifier that they can kind of latch onto and without really understanding any, any of the context, which is crazy. So have you, have you ever read uh, Ernest Lathlau and Chantal Moff? I have not. You ever heard of them? I have heard of LaCroix. They wrote a book. Yeah. So uh, I think the book that they were really well known for is called, uh, shit, I'm going to forget about it. Or I'm going to forget the name. It's something like, uh, like hegemony and like socialist strategy. Anyway, it's, it's like a book of essays, but you know, one of their ideas, what actually I find really interesting to think about how ideology functions in these particular moments is their idea was that, in, in, in any sort of like political social field or like context, right? Like a, you know, a country or like a particular historical period, there are certain signifiers that they called floating signifiers and that there are these ideas that sort of get filled up with different definitions depending on the political struggles of antagonistic groups against each other to like basically define what these words mean. So for example, you know, freedom is a really important one of these in the history of the United States, right? The idea that like what freedom means is sort of kind of determined hegemonically, which means 
that it isn't like the only way to define it, but it's sort of the dominant definition is actually the result of like material struggles of power and, and class society and like race and gender and all this stuff like historically. So what's really interesting to think about how ideology functions in these moments is that, you know, those people who were at the Capitol who have this sign that says like, you know, work will set you free or whatever the fuck it was, you know, like what does freedom mean there? And the question is like, well, who defines what freedom means in that context? Right. And I think the idea that ideology is something that like represents where it's like a, it's sort of like a symbolic or uh, like a symbolic representation of like actual material power struggles to me has always been a really helpful idea. So like if I talk to, you know, like people that I, like family members from back home who might like support Trump or like whatever, like be more right wing and you were to ask them like, oh, well, like, what do you care about? Or like what's, you know, what's most important to you in like politics and they'll tell you something about like freedom or whatever. Like, you know, like I think it is an interesting thing to explore of like, well, who defined what freedom means for them in this way? And and a lot of the time it's like, well, your conception of what freedom is seems to actually be very beneficial if you're, uh, you know, like Warren Buffett or a Koch brother doesn't really seem that this definition of freedom really benefits you in a lot of way, you know, again, but isn't necessarily to say that if people just like, you know, you could rationally talk someone into supporting like a different political position. So a lot of times there's like a lot of this unconscious enjoyment. Right. But I do think like what those words mean and like what signifiers mean in this like sort of floating way of like how they get sort of filled up by different groups at, at different times. And that's like a place of ideological struggle, I think is actually really crucial in times like this. You know, it's funny. I, this kind of reminds me of a conversation I had with my dad. I was like, <laughs> I was telling him uh, this was to me I think this is really funny but I told him that I thought waving the flag and like standing up for the Pledge of Allegiance and all that associated shit was un-American mm-hmm. <laughs> so I guess this part in, in the book where Zizek talks about like real nationalism is hating your own country probably hit home pretty hard <laughs> right well I don't I don't think he quite got it but I got immense enjoyment out of like which I kind of like in in my own weird ideology is is kind of like that's the quote unquote like that's the American ideal that I understood to some degree was like being a fucking follower and a like a sheep to be really obnoxious about it is is un-American mm-hmm. right like to be a, to do what mm-hmm. those people are doing is is un-American in the sense of what like in the kind of like liberal idea that I've kind of identified with or thought, you know, kind of growing up and going, you know, K through 12, for example, was not one to be like, you know, like, Oh, you're just going to follow like the, the demand to work. And like, this. I don't know that's, it's contradictory to what my conception of this idea of like liberty and freedom were from, from the get go which I think is like an interesting and funny, like it's hilarious, I think. But I like I think you can see the truth of it, of the idea that, yeah, like standing up for the national anthem is, <laughs> is anti-American, right? Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because then it comes down to like having to have some idea of how you think ideology works. Because, you know, there's like one view of ideology that like ideology obscures what is reality from you. It's like a, it's sort of like a false picture of what the world is or what reality is. But, you know, in Zizek's idea, 
in some ways, it'd be interesting to look at it through this lens because Zizek's idea of ideology is that it is precisely like you know what you're doing, but you do it anyway. So his, his example is always like the Catholic who goes to mass, who doesn't believe in anything about like transubstantiation or like taking the Eucharist, but yet like goes and does it anyway as like this ritualized gesture. Yeah. And for Zizek, you know, it's like, that's what ideology is now. Like ideology is precisely whenever you have this like distance or cynical distance towards what you're doing. And yet like you still continue to do it and it still continues to function. It like doesn't require your belief yeah. in it to function. Like anymore. us going to work. And so it's an interesting... <laughs> As communists yeah, or yeah, whatever, right? right? Or I, participating. Yeah, yeah. And I'm, yeah, it's like, I mean, yeah, it doesn't demand your ideological complicity with like the structures of capital to keep it going. You know, but I also think about how a lot of times, like you see this stuff with like, uh, like guys on the like right wing guys who are like so like intense and like next level about how patriotic they are. You know, like they like in some ways, the guys who go to the Capitol and open carrier, like you got to wonder how much like they also have a cynical distance towards what they're doing, like how much they on right, some level wonder. like are like, yeah, this is like really, you know, like it's really hyperbolic and really elaborate to like, like dress up like as if you're, you know, you're like a member of like SEAL Team 6 to like go stand around at the Capitol. You know, it's like it might be completely genuine. I mean, I don't know. But I could absolutely see that you could still like kind of do that almost like in a sort of like self-mocking kind of way and and still yet like be very aligned with that ideology. It's almost like you you sort of have the cynical distance, yet you're continuing to do it. And I think you do see some element of that because of like how um, like sort of like tongue in cheek it is sometimes, you know, whatever you see, like how like it gets represented in like memes or videos or whatever it is of like right wing reactionaries. I have a comment, but I probably should say it on the podcast because <laughs> after the podcast, I'll, I'll I'll mention it about what I think would. There's an image that I think is really fucking funny in the context of these people, but yeah, <laughs> we'll see. All right, that'll be for that'll yeah. be for like the the, the yeah, patrons for, only right, cut for sure. Um, but m- moving back, I think to the the book, I think something one of the most interesting aspects here is. Zizek talking about this ideological virus, and that may even be kind of where mm-hmm. you're already leaning. And But I didn't quite grasp what he meant with this. Can you give me some context on what he was going for this global collective society as an ideological virus infecting us? Yes. So it's a good or question. That we desire I, I found this to be – uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know. I mean, it's it's interesting. I'm not sure I have a good answer for this because I think this point I was I was a little bit like you could definitely tell this is a hot take. Like this is not the most well thought out conceptualization uh, that I can imagine. But I mean, I guess I read Zizek as saying that in some way, the same way that like there is like a like a biological event of like a virus that can infect us and like. And that it's kind of a result of like material conditions and it changes how we see and think about the world. So I, I think that like what Zizek is trying to offer, and again, I don't necessarily think he's very successful with it, but I think he's trying to say that, you know, the same way that this virus will change how we see the world and it potentially will change, you know, basic coordinates of our day-to-day life that, and this is a dialectical move, is that every time like risk and crisis becomes more acute, the possibility of like a, a sort of like a corresponding um, response to it is also possible. And I, I wonder if he's trying to just sort of conceptualize how 
we all, especially people on the left, I think want some sort of, you know, like vision or some sort of like global unified collective kind of society, like whatever that is, right? Whether that's a state or no state or however you want to think about it. But I, I see him like pushing this sort of metaphor kind of and flipping it to say that, you know, right now we're all so disillusioned and, and so like cynical about the possibility of something like this being possible that it's precisely in a crisis of global proportion that we then have sort of a material context in which to think about a corresponding response that would also be global. And I think, you know, again, I don't like the picture of ideology that he's offering here because it makes it sound like like ideology is only just these ideas in your head. It's almost like Richard Dawkins, like meme shit where it's like, Oh, like memes are just these ideas that like survive over time. And like humanity is really just like in control, like being controlled by our ideas. Right. But the material force of ideology. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so like, I think in some ways, yeah. Like, so I think he's like flirting with this like different conceptualization of ideology, but I think he's doing it rhetorically to say that, you know, in some way, like this change in material conditions will potentially have the opportunity for us to reconceptualize like a global collective society in a way that we, yeah, okay. we can't before this, precisely because of like the fractured nature of global capitalism and the way that like regionalism as a response to a universal situation of capital is like, I think for Zizek is typically like how, like our, what we think resistance to global capital is, is to like double down on sort of like um, uh, individualized specific identity as, and I think, you know, this is kind of what he's saying is like, we need to not return to that because that's also the fascist move in response to global capital, right? Is to like become more entrenched in your sort of like regional identity against some sort of larger universal global project of capital. So I think like for Zizek and people like Zizek, the, the move is to say like, we can't like, like reinvest or like redouble down on those regional spe- like specific identities, like the particular and not the universal, but to say like, we need to reconceptualize the universal in a new way that is not defined by capital. And that's why I think people like Zizek and Badiou are very much pushing a way to reconceptualize like a universal politics. And then that's like a whole separate debate in itself of like how they're doing that and whether that's like a, a valid approach or not. Right, and, and I think certainly, I don't know. Does that make sense? No. Is that is that a bunch of fucking no, nonsense? I think you, yeah, no, you totally laid that out pretty well and definitely answered my question, put it into a lot better context because I was like, I didn't quite see the connection he was making. But yeah, um, I think you're right. We could like go off, especially because I'm, I'm like on the Deleuze end of that, like of this kind of Hegel, <laughs> this kind of Hegel Deleuze friction. Yeah. Um, but I'm curious too, like what is, does, how does this operate so I'm not sure if I understood. So he's got this quote from Viktor Orban, which I thought was. Oh yeah, I wanted to yeah. talk about that too. Do you remember what page it's that's on? on? I wanted to pull It's on page that up. 45. Um, I've got the quote. I'll, I'll go ahead and read it okay. while you're um, getting that. Up. Yeah, go for it. So in a recent speech, Viktor Orban said, "There is no such thing as a liberal. A liberal is nothing more than a communist with a diploma." But <laughs> sorry, that quote I makes me laugh. What the fuck? <laughs> A con- what what is he even talking about? Like I can imagine, especially it's weird, given that wh- where's Orban? Is he is that Hungary, or is that okay? Yeah, yeah, he's Hungarian. Yeah, like uh-huh. I could see an American politician mm-hmm. making this statement, but 
for a country like Hungary that has, you know, ties to the Eastern Bloc, etc., like, what the fuck does that mean? That seems like a weird ideological phrase, and I'm, like, struggling to understand, like, what context he's even trying to get at with that idea. Yeah, so I think that people like Viktor Orban are considered sort of at the, like, spear tip of this resurgent, like, fascism, like, right-wing, like, authoritarian populism in Western Europe or, like, Western and Eastern Europe. So, like, I think part of, like, Orban's statement is sort of the same kind of ideological, like, viral infection that we see in a lot of, like, right-wing um, anti-communist ideas and, and you know, and anti-anarchist ideas, too, because for people on the right, like, everything left of, like, center or shit, like, maybe everything left of them is all the same shit. Yeah. Like, so being a liberal for them is essentially, like, really no different than communism. I mean, this is exactly why people like Shapiro, like Ben Shapiro and like Jordan B. Peterson, they interpret like fairly banal liberal sorts of ideas as being like full blown, like Stalinist communist ideology. And it's because there's this like collapsing of like ideological distinctions into just one sort of weird, undifferentiated mass of ideas. And so I think that Orban's quote is kind of exactly this same sort of mindset is to, you know, it's sort of like, um, you know, it's like reactionary guerrilla mindset, you know, it's like basically that essentially any like anyone who proclaims to be a liberal, like really underneath their sort of surface, they're really just they're wanting like the exact same sort of like, you know, weird, per, like fucked up, skewed idea of what like a lot of right wing reactionaries like think communism is. Like, it's basically just like a like a very sort of almost like deceptive mask that communists wear just to, like, appeal to people. But really underneath, it's like they want, you know, they want, like, the killing fields in, like, Cambodia or whatever they think. So that's what I kind of read him saying is, like, this quote by Orban is, like, a really symptomatic sort of statement of this particular, like, right wing, like, you know, like, kind of like crypto fascist sort of worldview. Um and I think, like, he's also doing this precisely to set up his then, like, flipping this on its head, which is to say that, like, you know, what if, like, a, um, oh, what does he say? Um, yeah, like, uh, let me find the quote here really fast. Um, it's on top of the next page, I think. Or wait, no, it's on 50, yeah. 55, maybe. Um, I can read it if you want. The where he's, Yeah, it, yeah, go for it. It's the part where he flips yeah, it around. So if we designate as liberals those who care for our freedoms and communists those who are aware that we can save those freedoms only with radical changes since global capitalism is approaching a crisis, then we should say that today those of us who still recognize ourselves as communists are liberals with a diploma, liberals who seriously <laughs> studied why our liberal values are under threat and became aware that only a radical change can save them. I think actually that's really fucking funny because that's kind of what I was sort of getting at with my idea that like, you know, pledging, saying, standing up for the Pledge of Allegiance or the national anthem or the flag or whatever, like yeah. that shit is un-American. <laughs> that's kind of this, I think that yeah. same nugget, right? Because I was talking about, I guess that, yeah, that exact sort of idea that, yeah, these like quote unquote liberal values <laughs> um, are antithetical to this project that neoliberalism has become. Yeah, I think you're absolutely on the exact same point. And this is something that, you know, I've actually talked about this with a, a, a comrade who's been on our show a couple of times, Jason Brownlee, who's a um, political science professor. And we've talked a lot about how, 
you know, in a lot of ways, like the thing that like a lot of liberal ideology presents as sort of what it wants. Like we want, you know, equal rights. We want to address inequality. We want, you know, like democratic participation. We want an informed citizenry. Like what, what, what is never really grappled with is that it is precisely those ideas within a capitalist economic context and the way that those two sort of like dialectically kind of relate to each other. It is precisely in a capitalist context that those ideas are actually deeply, deeply limited and impossible to obtain. And so it is only with like a radical perspective that one, if you really care about those things, it is precisely a radical kind of revolutionary perspective that will give you actually the best chance of being able to make those things manifest. And I mean, there are some interpretations of Marxist political framework as actually being this, that really in some ways, like Marx's whole critique of capitalism is, is in fact to say that liberal ideology is impossible within a system of capitalism. Because at the end of the day, he always said that whenever power is divided so unequally in society, this is one of my favorite Marx quotes of all time. He said, whenever, like, he says, whenever right meets right, like equal rights come to face each other, force decides who wins. And I think that that quote is something that liberal ideology has no, like it causes it to sort of sh short circuit and break down because it's the one thing that it can't really grapple with is that these sort of ideals like if you're in a context of a system that creates massive violent disparity of power and wealth and resources, then these ideas don't mean shit. Like, because at the end of the day, they're just a veneer over who has right. power. And I think that that is exactly kind of what you're saying is that, you know, yeah, you can like stand up and say the national anthem and salute the flag all fucking day if you want. But if you really cared about those ideas, like why are you not like, like out in the streets right now and not with the, protesters you know the the open carry protesters at the capitol but like part of some like actual like radical revolutionary sort of movement that wants to actually implement these ideas truthfully because in a system of capitalism the way that it structures society it's not it's not possible and actually it just like helps capitalism thrive even stronger to imagine that we're actually implementing these right. these values and these ideals in any sort of way yeah liberalism can't even make can't even accommodate its own the promise of what it tries to advocate for. Uh, yeah, you know, and I mean, this is this may be a little controversial to say, but in some ways, you know, it's like I feel like I still to this day get along much better with like people like my family back home who were like reactionaries, like versus like my liberal friends in social work because it's like it's like well, at least I feel like the reactionaries like have a certain like sort of like there's no like covering of what they really want. It's like at least, you know, it's pretty on the surface, like what they think and like what they think their project is. And it's like, I can respect that. It's what Malcolm X said. It's like, at least I know, you know, with the Southern racist, like I'm going to see the knife yeah. in his hand, like before he stabs me. Like at least there's an honesty right. to it. And I think to some degree, I'm like, yeah, I don't know. I can kind of, I can kind of understand that. Um, one topic that I think I'll, we'll probably wrap up on, we have a lot of notes, but I think this is mm -hmm. probably, to me, the most interesting aspect of this is the logic of panic. And I think... Oh, I, yeah. I think this yeah, is... Yeah, yeah, I was hoping we would get to talk about this. This is really fascinating because, see, I and in the context of something like the the toilet paper shortage, mm -hmm. I think that that short... Like, in the context of the logic of of scarcity and of capitalism as it exists, it's, it is rational to panic. <laughs> right. Like I mm -hmm. think, I think that's yeah. the kind of irony or the, maybe the dialectical like reversal of this is like, 
I was kind of thinking about that, and this is a hot take too, to be honest, is like, yes, it's it's logical to hoard or to panic about those kinds of things under the structures of capitalism because it's like, oh, there, you know, there may not be enough. I have to I have to consume this amount, right? Like that that mm-hmm. that makes sense. But what's really funny to me, and I don't know if you remember this, but it was a it was a couple of years ago where we had a quote unquote gas shortage. Do you re- do you recall this? It was like maybe two summers ago. I re- I recall this very well. And let me just say that uh, me and um, one of our our uh, our sort of like structural components of Red Library, uh, Comrade Commissar Don, as he goes by, we were actually talking about this multiple times of how you know it's so funny that that wasn't that long ago, and already once this happened and like the toilet paper <laughs> crisis happened, you know the first thing I thought about was like. Like, does no one remembering the gas crisis from a few years ago? Because this is like the logic of this yeah, is exactly, exactly the, same. the same. So yes, I remember that very well. Yeah, mm-hmm. but it, exactly this same thing, and I think too, like to get Baudrillardian, this weird, like simulated world that we live in creates like the panic is an idea, and then it does like it. It's almost well ideology too. It's like the material force of ideology creates the the actual actions that are taking place yeah which i think is pretty funny and like it's weird i think now i don't know maybe i'm just more aware of these sort of things i don't recall there ever being a situation in in my earlier life where i observed this sort of shit happening in the wild but now that it like now that i'm adult it's very clear like this weird relationship between perception and reality and like technology playing a part in that sort of logic of panic itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, this sort of dialectical relation between material conditions and the ideology that sort of relates to them, I think, is important mm-hmm. because, you know, in some sense, what you're seeing is how there is this logic of scarcity because we exist in material conditions of scarcity. Like, that's kind of what everyone operates on is this idea that I think two things. One, there are only a very, very limited amount of things, and I basically have to compete with right. everyone else to make sure that I maximize my like consumption or like obtaining of those resources. But there's another piece of this that's really important, which is that I can't rely on anyone else to help like provide some sort of like collective solidarity with me in this moment. So I better make sure that I hoard as much of that as possible. Exactly. So I think that you know, like those are those are like material conditions of of capitalism that create that sort of like think like basic phenomenological experience of the world. Then something like the pandemic happens and then all of a sudden like that idea like gains immense immense power and then we operate on it and then the the sort of the the idea that emerged out of like or sort of in relationship to a material condition then becomes accelerated becomes more intense and then that in turn feeds back into the material conditions and then exacerbates those into conditions of scarcity even more and you have this sort of like really horrible diabolical feedback loop but you know it's like where do you sort of like pick out like where does that begin and where does it end you know it's like it's a total process that's happening um but, you know, there's one thing I wanted to read, too, uh, really no, quick, if you don't mind in this, because uh, I this, this is one of my favorite quotes in the whole thing. Um, what Zizek says, this is on page 64, he says, What this contrast tells us is that panic is not a proper way to confront a real threat. 
When we react in panic, we do not take the threat seriously. We, on the contrary, trivialize it. Just think how ridiculous is the notion that having enough toilet paper would matter in the midst of a deadly <laughs> epidemic. And so what I, what I really love about this is that, you know, this, this is sort of Zizek's kind of whole approach that I think, you know, hot take or not, it can really, I think, like shift your way of thinking, especially if you've never read shit like this before, is to say that, oh, yeah, like even though this looks like you're taking something incredibly seriously, what you're actually doing this trivializing is you're not actually thinking about the larger like structural conditions that like would actually be, you'd have to change those if you really want to address the situation. And so, you know, yeah, like going and buying a shit ton of toilet paper in a weird way is like a, like it's a weird way that we're like trivializing and sort of disconnecting ourselves from the larger structural situation that's actually happening. And I think that's what we do all the time. You know, that's like in a, in a way what gets us out of this sort of feeling of being implicated in capitalism itself is this idea that, well, you know, whenever shit hits the fan, you know, as long as I'll just go buy enough toilet paper and make sure I'm taking care of for me without realizing that it's like, you're part of the, like you are part of the problem. You know, it's like structurally, like you and the problem are the yeah. same thing. And I think that that's, that's a really hard shift to make, especially whenever, you know, you're socialized to be this like individual consumer and you're, we're all socialized to be that whether we yeah, like it or like not. Like whenever you're so, you're just this atomized subject that has no connection to any larger social context other than like the, through the avenue of consumption. Mm. Absolutely. I, I think it's interesting too, in the context of markets and how markets function, because I don't think that, I mean, obviously, like, depending on whom you're speaking to, but I think it's a little bit counterintuitive or goes against common sense that markets enforce scarcity. Mm -hmm. Like, I I don't think that the average person recognizes that relationship that, like, markets are distributing goods based on, like, who has the most resources, right? Yeah. Or et cetera. Or they're driving that kind of consumption that causes the very thing that you're trying to avoid you know what i mean that kind of market mechanism yeah no absolutely i mean this comes back to what we were talking about earlier in terms of like you know the function of the function of ideology in all of this right because you have to ask yourself the question it's like like what like how does that happen that markets are understood as doing the exact opposite of what they actually do and, and, you know, and that's like, that's the really important question to ask is, is to under, like, try to think through how is it possible that that, it, like that functions so well, you know, this is like kind of the basic, like sociological kind of method, right. Is to make the familiar strange. I mean, I think that's what a lot of like critique of ideology and like sort of this like cultural criticism is really about is to say like, what if we take these things that we just take for granted and make them strange and try to like understand them and like look at them as if it was like the first time we ever saw them. And this is exactly one of them. Like, you know, markets equal freedom, equal, you know, individual liberty, equal like uh, prosperity for everyone to the maximum degree. I mean, that's like this sort of like, you know, sort of like signifying chain that we all sort of like exist in all the time. And like, that's what's like so hard is because, you know, to, to critique like capitalism, right? Like is like if I was to talk to, let's say, like a family member from back home or someone I went to high school with who, you know, very patriotic, very nationalistic, really thinks capitalism is the best of all possible systems. You know, if you were to ask them like, well, okay, well, why do you think this is the best? You know, more often than not, it's going to come down to a question about freedom and prosperity. Right. That like this is the thing that's going to help 
bring the most prosperity to everybody. And so there's this like signifying chain that you sort of have to like really systematically deconstruct, I think, to eventually break that sort of ideological kind of hold that it has on people because they're, you know, it isn't just like, like markets, right? It's about the most basic fundamental value in like the history of the United States, like political and ideological sort of development, which is like freedom, freedom and liberty, right? And so it's like, if, if your basic fundamental economic system is connected to the idea that this is going to maximize those, you know, that's a really, that's a really deeply embedded thing that you're trying to sort of critique and, and, you know, and I think it's not unfair to say break, you know, because I guess to go back to what you were saying earlier and to some way, like, you know, maybe for you, like thinking about your political perspective, I imagine to some degree, it's also about, well, this is actually like the most effective way to actualize these sorts of things that are going to be most beneficial to people. I mean, shit, I know that's why I have the political view I do. It's like, I, I legitimately think this is the best way to get to this point, you know? And so it's just like kind of a, I mean, it makes sense to me why it's so hard to like, to talk about this stuff with people who don't, who like think very differently than you, because, you know, it's like you're fundamentally having to deconstruct like everything about you think that you think about right. the world just yeah, to like talk exactly. about one just thing, to like you know? get, just to nudge the door open. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think too. Alongside that, like this, I, this critique of markets in particular, it's like, or this frequent argument or refrain you hear is that, you know, capitalism has been the most has been brought about whatever the, generated the most wealth in history, or you know, this idea mm -hmm. of prosperity and how it's brought more prosperity than ever before. But we ask the question like prosperity or whatever for whom like you know what i mean yes absolutely mm -hmm. capitalism yeah. has you know made capitalists more wealthy than than any other system in the history of the world yes absolutely capitalism has brought prosperity to like those at the one percent that own everything <laughs> you know what i mean yeah more than ever before but what has it done for like the the lowest among us and i think what's the i forget who the quote is from but isn't it like judging a society based on how they treat the the lowest among them is the real like rubric you should sort of strive for. Yeah. You know, it's funny. Um, did you ever watch Eddie Murphy? Like the Eddie Murphy's like stand up yeah. specials, like raw and delirious and all that. So yeah, yeah. I can't remember which one it was, but there's the whole joke about uh, like the, the wife who says like, what have you done for me lately? Do you remember oh, this man, joke? I, I, off the top of my head, I don't. So, but it was, I was just thinking about this because there was a recent episode we did on McGowan's capitalism and desire. And, uh, Alex, who was on our show, coined one of my favorite phrases of all time now, which is capitalism is my future ex-wife. <laughs> <laughs> but I was thinking about this because it's like, yeah, that's the question that we should be all asking capitalism is that like, unless you're like Elon Musk, the real question is like, capitalism, what have you done for me lately? You haven't done shit. You know, so yeah, like, why right? are we continuing in this relationship? Exactly. Yeah, it's like survivorship. <laughs> what is it? Survivorship? No, not survivorship bias, but like sunk sunk cost fallacy. That's where we're at with capitalism. It's like we've sunk so yeah, like, oh, we've been together. So these couple of last centuries, hey, they've been great. OK, <laughs> you know, <laughs> we have we have all these yeah, things, you know, we, you know uh, lifespans are going up, etc. You know, but, you know. Maybe it's time to move on for us both now. 
Yeah, that's what I think, right? Like, if this was a healthy relationship and not a toxic relationship, totally and I think toxic. this is the true dialectical Marxist perspective, is to be like, yeah, you know, things were right. good for a while, maybe for a little bit, but then they became toxic, and we both grown as people, and we just need to go our separate ways because, you know, you've done some great things. I couldn't have gotten here without you, but really, you know, our relationship has run its course. And we're going to end that relationship by violently revolutionary <laughs> overthrowing of the system. But, you know, in some ways, I think it's like that's the always the dialectical like Marxist ideas to be like, yeah, like capitalism created certain conditions in like a certain like sort of shift in history that then will set conditions for something else that could in, in a way potentially, you know, take all that ability to create the greatest surplus in the history of, you know, humanity in terms of like politics and economics and to actually be able to distribute that surplus in a way that will not just horribly, you know, impoverish like 99.9% of all of humanity for the sake of that like fraction of a percent, you know? So, I mean, I think that's the idea. It's like, we just got to, you know, understand that it's a toxic relationship and we, you know, we have to like, maybe go like, this is where psychoanalysis comes in. We got to go, we got to go talk to our therapist. We got to go <laughs> get some psychoanalysis done. And then maybe realize, you know, the nature of the relationship of the wind. So then maybe we'll uh, de-invest from it. And then just like in Titanic, we just let capitalism, capitalism is Jack. We're just going to like <laughs> let it sink. You know what I mean? And you know what I really love about that, that idea too? Because there's always that criticism. Like there was plenty of room on the door for Jack and, uh, and Rose but she still let him just sink into the abyss and drown. And so I think this is exactly right. It's like there might be enough room on the door for us and capitalism, but we're not going to we're not going to exactly. fall prey. We're going to gonna... <laughs> we're going to let capitalism sink we into the abyss. We will grow old uh, in our in our warm beds. <laughs> in our communist utopia. <laughs> That's <right>? the idea. <laughs> or you know, anarcho-communist utopia. I really don't care what we call it. So, as long as it's not capitalism. <laughs> so. I I don't want to see any no commodity production. Ever again? <laughs> no, no money, no exchange of paper notes. Ever? What else? <laughs> so we're um, abolishing money. We're abolishing was... private property. <laughs> commodity production. From each according to the ability. Oh no, shit! I was just. What is it? From each according to the ability to each according to the exactly. need. That's what Bernard Sanders stands for. <laughs> that's the revolutionary exactly. program it's just straight marxism 101 so any um was there uh, we skipped some of the notes we had but i felt like you know we had the we yeah, pretty sure. much hit the highlights was there anything else though that you were like burning to discuss or something that you wanted to add at all before we wrap up yeah i guess the last thing i'll just tag on and this is uh again just a nice little dialectical idea um Zizek has this this sort of comment about like the specters are more terrifying the more invisible they are and sort of this difference between reality and the real and I realize I should probably pull up a quote because I shouldn't try to wing this considering how complicated of an idea it was hold on one second um, real reality is real <laughs> real recognize real is that how that works <laughs> Real knows when it sees itself I, I, on yeah, the road. I'm the real is like seeking recognition of the other in itself. I don't know. <laughs> I'm just freestyling oh, some damn. kind of well, real shit. 
<clears throat> what we're dealing with here is the distinction elaborated by Lacan between reality and the real. Reality is external reality, our social and material space to which we are used and within which we are able to orient ourselves and interact with others, while the real is a spectral entity, invisible and for the, th that very reason appearing as all-powerful. The moment that this spectral agent becomes mm -hmm. part of our reality, its power is localized. It becomes something we can deal with. And then even if we lose the battle, as long as this transposition into reality cannot take place, we get trapped in either an anxious paranoia, pure globality, or resort to ineffective symbolizations through acting outs that expose us to unnecessary risks, and that would be pure locality. And I think mm -hmm. that was the dialectical contradiction yeah. that you were maybe getting towards. Earlier, really, you kind of mm -hmm. talked about how retreating to pure locality was the was the risk as opposed to trying to work towards a new globality or new universal yeah and i think maybe that's kind of what i would leave off on too is that you know sort of trying not to like um fall prey to like the the double blackmail as Zizek would call it you know this sort of um like this anxious paranoia of like pure globality or like sort of again like this collapse into like just the local regionalized responses so i guess what i really like about Zizek's approach even if you know again it's a hot take a very long hot take is just that he always constantly emphasizes this this ability to not fall prey into like one side of this dichotomy that's presented to us and i think that in some ways yeah the political project that Zizek is operating you know in and sort of in the service of or like what he's aiming at is to is to theorize to some degree like what it would look like to to conceptualize or to sort of develop a new universal like global kind of political vision and his particular perspective is one that sees this crisis of the pandemic as giving us like potentially an opening into that but it's a perilous one because we can also fall prey into this sort of like anxious paranoia or this sort of like collapse into this regionalism. And so, you know, in a way, like part of what we're trying to do is to like, yeah, like take the real, the spectral entity of the real and to make it graspable in reality to then be able to deal with it and to conceptualize like possibilities in a new way. And, you know, again, it's, it's, um, and it's especially important to, to step back and to do that in the midst of a crisis, like to not fall prey to the logic of panic and to trivialize what we're actually encountering. Because, you know, Zizek's thing he talks about, and I think this is a really apt uh, situation to think about it, is where he says, like, don't just do something, think. You know, that in this sort of moment, the, the tendency is going to be to just react and to do, engage in some act, to just say, I have to be doing right. something. And I think his point is, is that as long as we stay stuck in that, we, in a sense, are just feeding back into the system of global capital, continuing to function and to sort of prey upon crisis and our sort of vulnerability to it even more effectively. And so the role of theory, the role of, you know, the sort of the philosopher in this is to actually give us that ability to pause and step back and really think about what's going on. Because until we do that, we're not going to be able to see, you know, a potential uh, like a potential like crack in the structure that could then provide an escape. And I think that's, you know, as important now as ever. So, I mean, the ending with this distinction between reality and real, I think is actually like was one of the strongest parts of the book, because to me it was one of the clearest theorizations of like Zizek's perspective and what it has to bring in this particular pandemic, I think. 
I don't really have anything to add. I think that's a fantastic way to, to close out the episode. So now I will give you the, once again, I will give you the opportunity to plug the things. Now you have five <laughs> minutes to plug all of your things. <laughs> um, I, I don't even know if no, I have five kidding. minutes of things to plug. Uh, well, the big, well, the big one, I'm just going to, I'm going to plug shit that just, I'm not even a part of just to, just I'm going to do a GJ thing where I'm going to take <laughs> all five minutes. Yeah. And then I'm going to take another five minutes. Um, so, well, I mean, the big thing is, uh, obviously I'm, uh, one of not the only, but definitely, um, one of the hosts of uh, red library political education podcast for today's left. So for any of y'all peoples out there, uh, who haven't listened to us yet, the basic premise is, is that. We take every um, every episode or every group of episodes is basically where we sort of uh, take a book of theory or political thought or history, and we actually try to teach that book to each other on the show or to like talk through a book and discuss it in a way that makes it accessible and relevant for people, you know, engaged in leftist politics in any sort of way, whether that's like you're just studying and learning on your own, or you're actually part of an organization or whatever it might be. But the idea is like, it is designed to be an educational podcast. That's very hopefully accessible and, you know, fun and yet still relevant and like doesn't sacrifice complexity for also, you know, just having a good time and enjoying like the sort of the pleasure of like reading and, and studying and learning. The jouissance. So that's kind of, yeah, like pure jouissance. I mean, that's really what the show is about. And we try to make it as perverse as possible. Um, so we do a lot of stuff related to like Marxism, but we've also read some like um, anarchist thoughts, some anarcho-communist thought, but we do a lot of stuff on like the history of political movements and labor. Um, right now we're going through a big psychoanalysis phase. We're reading a lot of stuff related to Lacan and like mar modern Lacanian theorists. Um, so that's the thing. So, I mean, uh, you know, I know there's a lot of overlap between the stuff that you do and some of the stuff that we do. So hopefully people can come check us out and we're going to keep plugging y'all, uh, your show as well. Um, our, our podcast is now part of what's called the Lost Horizons Podcast Network, which is us, The Regrettable Century, and From 78. And we sort of kind of all consider ourselves unified by exploring the idea of dialectical pessimism, which is kind of like a very Zizek, Lacanian sort of inspired way to think about politics and leftist uh, radical politics now in this context. So um, we now do a sort of like collaborative uh, show a couple of times a month where all the different people from the podcast get together and just sort of like talk about different uh, current events or different theoretical ideas. So that's something that there's a feed out there so people can check that out and I can send you some links if you'd like. Um, I guess the last thing is I have a blog that I don't do a whole I don't do very often, but every once in a while I'll get inspired and I'll write like usually a very, very long, uh, really dense theoretical piece. It's called Capillaries Theory at the Front. And so I uh, have a couple of pieces on there that people might want to check out. It's just sort of related to a lot of the stuff that comes out on Red Library in my theoretical perspective. So yeah, those are the big things. Um, yeah, I think that's about it, honestly. So just for my, for my listeners, I think that there's a definitely, like, like Adam said, there's a tremendous amount of overlap and interest, and I think we we cover a you know a, a fairly amount of common ground, definitely when it comes to I think Lacan in in particular. But I mean, I feel like mm -hmm. I can't yeah. remember if maybe it was just Regrettable Century or not that did uh, something on like Yugoslavia, the economy of Yugoslavia. That was fucking fascinating. Thought that was really that's something that I'm like super fascinated by is like okay what about albania and like yugoslavia and like how did those mm -hmm. economies function you know outside of the you know ussr but still under under communism or like some type of a socialist uh, economy 
and just like so many interesting characters too, like Hoxa and and some other guys that are involved. And wait, who was the? Okay, so Hoxa was the was he the Albanian or was okay? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was all about right. them. Bunkers. So he was the one that was like calling fucking uh, Castro and like uh, and Che like anarchists and like revisionists and shit. Which I think is is fucking hilarious, yeah. like given the context. Yeah, yeah. just total Chad. Just, yeah, just total Chad. Really funny stuff, but uh, yeah, I think uh, anybody that li- likes my podcast would definitely be uh, be someone that could get something out of of Red Library. Absolutely. So just want to share that that feedback there. But uh, let's see. Uh, do you want what about like social media feeds? Did you didn't mention any of that? before I go on my own. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, Patreon, yeah. Well, all that good stuff. Yeah. I mean, well, you know, we, yeah. So we have a Patreon, so we're trying to work up to 50 patrons right now. And so that's a, that's an ongoing project. Um, we have a Twitter account. I, I sort of am not a wizard of, of ship posting, but I sort of combine ship posting with like legit theoretical musings or like quotes from the things yeah. that we're reading and studying. So people can follow us on Twitter. Um, you know, we have a Facebook, uh, we have a MySpace. <laughs> Uh, we have an AOL Messenger account if people want to find us on oh, there. <laughs> oh, snap. Um, but, yeah, so I would say, like, yeah, if people like what y'all do, um, I think especially for the Lacanian psychoanalytic stuff, again, we do a lot of that. We just did um, a big two-parter on Alenka Zupanchich's What is Sex. We're doing a Todd McGowan reading series right now. Um, we've had Neil on, like, in multiple capacities. He's doing the McGowan reading series with us. So if they liked your episode with Neil from From 78, he, they can come check us out reading through Capitalism and Desire with Neil, which is a hell of a lot of fun. Our skin episode actually drops on the third. And so we're going to be doing that reading series probably for, like, eight or nine episodes. So, yeah, lots of good stuff. And, uh, yeah, we should also mention, too, that I will be joining you for a discussion on Baudrillard's symbolic death Symbolic right. exchange and death coming up soon. It's going to be lit. Uh, so I've really enjoyed that, especially after like I've been reading uh, Felix Watari's Machine to Unconscious and like going to symbolic exchange and death is like, uh, it's kind of like when you <laughs> like you put that old trick where you like put your arm against the wall for like 30 seconds and then you like it lifts on its own. <laughs> that was kind of like the feeling I got <laughs> after... <laughs> For making that switch, it was like, oh, shit, this is way easier to understand. And it's covering a lot of the same, a, yeah, uh, a decent amount of the same ground. So definitely looking forward to that conversation Yeah, as well. Yeah, that's going to be a really good one. And I think um, we're also going to do a Deleuze episode at some point soon with maybe another guest. But yeah, I mean, I think it's important that people, especially who might be kind of newer to Marxist or like anarchist ideas, like also get exposed to that stuff because that stuff is really important to read, especially, you know, if you're around on today's left and not like the left of a hundred years ago, it's like people have written other shit since Lenin. So it's important to like read the other stuff too. So we try to be really like broad and expansive in the kind of stuff that we read. And so, yeah, I think like Baudrillard is going to be awesome to cover and it should be um, very, I'm sure there'll be a lot of perverse recense okay, whenever yeah. we do that episode. I'm looking forward to it. I think it's cool because, He's kind of taking Marxism. He's like taking Marxist political economy, semiotics, and psychoanalysis, and jamming those three together. And I like that. I really yeah. like that. I don't know. Something really fascinating, like the political economy of the sign, etc. Which I, I won't go too much further into. Um, but uh, thanks again for for joining me on the show, Adam. I'm gonna I'm gonna close this out by 
reminding folks about my Patreon again at uh, patreon.com forward slash M-U-H-H, the, the podcast Twitter account at unconsciousHH, and the Instagram account at unconsciousHH as well. But this will be the Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry signing out for the week. The very rules of giving of negativity and Peace out, y'all.